at a certain point, I said to them, I'm not cutting anything else. We'll just let them sue us. I guess this is just the episode where we talk about the shared emotional core of Derek and Styles. I mean, we wouldn't have mountain ash. <laughs> you meet in the sandbox. You die in the sandbox. And I looked at David at one point and I said, David, what the f is this? I'm trying to finish season two to you. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Clissa Mollis, and I'm joined by Kate Colvin and Will Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about season two, episode 12, Master Plan. Also, this week, we have a special co-host, Jay Young. How are you doing? Uh, Amazing. I'm doing amazing. Thank you. Recently, Jay started working with us on the podcast, and we really appreciate all of her great help. Thanks, Jay. We do. Thank you, Jay. Thank you much. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, alpha and beta. The beta section is for first timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series, as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the alpha and beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfy patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, Full Moon AMAs, The Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at return to Beacon Hills at gmail.com. This week's episode is titled Master Plan and it was written by Jeff Davis and directed by Russell Mulcahy. In this week's episode, though everyone thinks Jackson is dead, Melissa witnesses him morphing into the next stage of his Kanama transformation. Styles finds himself in Gerard's clutches along with Boyd and Erica. Derek and Peter join forces with Scott and Isaac to try and solve the Jackson problem, potentially with Lydia's help. As Allison becomes increasingly violent under her grandfather's watchful eye, Chris begins to see his own father as the enemy. Gerard's master plan is revealed, but then so is Scott's. Their manipulations tear apart the supernatural pack and the hunter clan of Beacon Hills alike until Scott is left with the only person he knows he can always count on. Our favorite quote this week is a conversation between Allison and Scott. Allison says, there's no such thing as fate. Scott says, there's no such thing as werewolves. Oh, it's Amazing. So it's a good one. I love that one so much. It just, it literally defines Beacon Hills. Oh, yeah. That's what it is. It does. Yeah. One of our honorable mention quotes for this week is a conversation between Scott and Styles. Styles says, dude, you still got me. Scott goes, I had you before. And Styles says, yeah, and you still got me. Okay. So life fulfilled. That's a very good so one. So true, too. Styles. So true. Very true. So true. Like, Styles came into my life and I was like, I don't need anything else. I don't have to watch any other show ever again. I have Styles Stolinski. Mm-hmm. Best fictional character ever. Yes. This week's episode begins when Jackson's seemingly lifeless body gets loaded up into an ambulance inside a body bag that isn't fully sealed. And we see Venom dripping out of the bag. I'm surprised that the EMT isn't like, why is he leaking so much fluid? Because that would be my first question. Yeah, aren't those bags supposed to not do that? So everyone just thinks he's dead at this point, though, right? Just to be clear. Yeah, basically, I guess. Mm-hmm. I forgot about that. I did too, actually. 
everyone thought he was dead, but he actually comes back. Shocking. He's only like the second person to do that on Teen Wolf so far, though. In a span of 24 episodes. It does seem like, since they think Jackson's dead, everyone should be more upset. I know he's a dick, but still. Even just like the trauma of seeing someone like dead in front of them. And knowing how young he was. Exactly. Lydia's really the only one who seems sad at all in these two episodes about Jackson dying. It's just Lydia. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, you know, he's he's just not a good person. That's why. But it still feels like someone should be upset. Not because he's a good person. He's a piece of shit. But still, <laughs> he's like a 17-year-old kid who died in front of their faces. And it wasn't a natural death. It was right. a violent one. He was bloody. Yeah. Yeah, there should have been more reaction, at least from that. And it's like, is there a murder running around? There'd be like so many questions I'd have. Yeah, I mean, like emotions are high. People are panicking everywhere. And I bet most of them don't even know like why they're panicking. Like someone's down in the field, someone's down on the field. And unless you're out there like looking at it, everyone's just screaming and running and it's a disaster. And like Styles is missing after winning the whole freaking game. I would think that like rational thought, even in the midst of like death is a big maybe given what we know about Scott and his merry little band of wayward werewolves because he is just not focused ever. No, yeah. never. Very true. Melissa convinces the EMT to let her ride in the ambulance since she'll have to provide a statement on Jackson's death anyway. The EMT starts to protest, but Melissa gets into the ambulance anyway. Yeah. What was that little run she did towards the passenger seat? I mean, it was like really adorable, actually. Absolutely. So cute. She is by far the best TV mom, hands down. And yes, that does include Jody Mills. So sorry, Kim Rhodes, but she's the best ever. Exactly. I actually have a surprising little factoid about the EMT driver that I'm not going to reveal to the end, though. Ooh. Oh. Okay. Oh, I don't even know this. All right. Hinchman shoves Styles down a staircase into a basement. Oh, poor Styles. Physical comedy, physical trauma, tomato, tomato. I'd like to think this is also a more strategic move, just because I like to find like purpose in the in why people do things and include it in television. But like, if you shove Styles of all people down the stairs, odds are he is going to break something because he would probably fall down the stairs anyway. So I feel like that's just going to keep him from running away. Like easier and that way they don't have to like do so much to keep him from getting away i can see that i feel like that's also purposeful and not just like hunters being douches <laughs> nice, it's possible nice. in my head though i don't know if you've seen death proof but he, it just reminds me of like zoe bell's character in there where like yeah she's constantly <laughs> like doing stuff like falling off cliffs and like yeah going off cars and everything but then she okay. just pops up and like i'm okay yeah <laughs> It's great. We're alive. Styles finds himself in a hunter's dungeon where Erica and Boyd are chained up. Allison never comments on Styles getting abducted, does she? Nope. And she has to know because she was the one who captured Boyd and Erica. Yes, she definitely 100% knows what is happening. That really ruins me watching Allison and Styles to be best friends who work together. Yes, it does. I, I know tend- Jay feels the same way. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I do. I do. I really do. I tend to play, I tend to play devil's, devil's advocate a little bit, but like, especially here because I love their relationship. Like I call them siblings. I, I like, I say that Allison is Styles' sister because they just have that energy and it comes out a lot more like in fan fiction, but I think it comes out in subtext in the show a lot too. But I also think it's possible that she doesn't know because I think her pre-existing relationship with Styles, knowing that he's a human, like she can have these aggressive aggressive emotions and feelings towards the werewolves because they're werewolves but styles is a human and i think realizing like how far gerard is willing to go and the lines that he's willing to cross are just like really 
extreme. And I think if she had realized that sooner, it might have snapped her back before the whole fight and been able to like help her like refocus on, oh, he actually just hates these people and wants them dead, but is willing to become one of them because it serves him. So he's not, it's not, it's not some moral quest to purify the world. It's, he's actually a piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) All men in power are just pieces of shit. Mostly at the end of the day, not all. I love you, Barack Obama. But Okay, that's true. You know, many. If someone's like, I hate these people or this or that type thing, it's like, "Mm, what's, but there's something else happening here. Tell me, Mm -hmm. well, we're going to figure it out eventually when your grand scheme comes to light, but yeah. Let's just wait for them to monologue about it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) In the locker room at the high school, Stolinski informs Scott and Isaac that he's put an APB on Stiles, whose Jeep is still in the parking lot. Coach Finstock approaches Scott and urges him to get his grades up because the team needs him. Though Finstock yells at the kids a lot, he doesn't actually hate them, he says, except Greenberg. But Greenberg is my son, so I can't hate him. My imaginary son. Like in that Lifetime movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite coach headcanon. Is that like Greenberg is like A, a figment of his imagination or B, literally related to him. Because I feel like that kind of aggression can't come from just like having a student in class. Yeah. And I just like to combine them there that he's his imaginary son. Imaginary son. At the same time, let's go. Exactly. Scott and Isaac decide to start tracking styles by scent. Scott takes Styles a shirt and hands Isaac a shoe, which Isaac does not appreciate. Can you guys not just both use the shirt? Yeah, guys. Once you find mom, you have to prove that you were able to play nice when he wasn't around. <laughs> Pac-Mom Styles. Oh. Pac-Mom yep. Styles for life. Yep. I treasure that. Styles tries to free Erica and Boyd, but he finds that their bindings are electrified. Gerard comes down the stairs and says that Erica and Boyd were trying to warn him about the electricity, though their mouths were taped shut. Okay, I actually love the audio transition between Scott saying holy shit and Styles saying shh, because it was just like flawless, but also really chilling because now they're both in a lot of trouble. Like we finally have context for what happened like when Styles went missing, now like Scott's in trouble too. So both of their focuses are on their own like problems, but like it's just, it just kind of brings together like the drama of the final episode and how all of that is like coming to a head where everyone is like running for their lives now. And also I have no doubt that if he needed to, Styles would continue to touch the electrically charged chains in order to get Boyd and Erica down. If you couldn't get to the power box, if you couldn't fix that, he would still touch it because that's just the kind of person that he is. A little oh, bit absolutely. reckless, but mostly a good heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the audio from that eventuality would have been hilarious. Like, the, <laughs> like the lights go out and all you hear is, ow, ow, ow. ow. And he's like still just doing it. Exactly. Styles warns Gerard that Scott will be able to find him by scent. Which is just a lot of Axe body spray. (laughs) (laughs) So much. Probably true. I love this interaction between like Styles and Gerard because it's like, it's like a funny like interaction between two like really powerful comedic actors. But like also the subtext of it is like Styles craves control. Like it is so, it's so obvious throughout the entire show, but the way that it plays in like right here is just, he's trying to control the conversation. He is terrified these kids that he's grown up with his entire life that he's just barely started to become friends with are being electrified and tortured because they're werewolves, which actually saved both of their lives. So like very important thing to have been done, but like him getting to like take control of the conversation at least a little bit, it like settles him and kind of like 
brings his mind back so that he can focus on how to get out. And I think that it's also a big part of his initial apprehension towards Derek. I think that like plays into it too, because Derek knows everything. Derek has all of the information that Styles can't get to. And so like he wants control of that. He wants the information so he can be prepared. Like he wants to give the information, but he wants to give it to Scott because the Scott's the one he wants to be involved in and Styles is just along for the ride. So I think that really like defines like Styles' role, at least in the first couple seasons and then his relationship with Derek as well. No, that's great. I really like the analysis of it. Yeah, that's really and I think cool. Derek is the same way in that he really craves control and f- doesn't feel safe when he doesn't have control of a situation. And sometimes we'll try to control a conversation if that's the only thing he can control. And I feel like one example of that would be in season one when Chris Argent was threatening him and he hadn't done anything except be born a werewolf. And they're like, they're walking away. He just has to say something. He can't, he can't just be like, well, that's over. And he has Mm -hmm. to say, you forgot to check the oil. And same thing with Kate at the end of season one when he's chained up and he's like are you gonna torture me or just talk me to death no good is gonna come from him saying that except that he feels like less helpless because he's some yeah but he has some control over the conversation I think he and Styles share that instinct Mm -hmm. like if I can just say something sarcastic just so they know that I'm not cowed yeah then I'll feel a little bit better yeah do you think that comes at least for uh, on the Derek side of things do you think that comes from just what happened with him and Kate when he was young where he was not in control especially if you take on fire as canon because a lot of those conversations he felt super out of his depth mm-hmm. yeah. you know like sometimes he would talk about stuff and he's like oh my god grown-up stuff <laughs> like he just, <laughs> he just had like no idea how to engage in this conversation and like when we were seeing things from Kate's side, she would be like, yeah, sometimes he says things that are really childish. And it's like, really? I wonder why that is. But, you know, like, so I think that is kind of like now he's an adult and he has that sarcastic little quip that he didn't have six years ago when he felt super out of his depth in these conversations. Yeah. And that's just kind of a defense mechanism that he has. And I think Styles, it's the exact same way. Yeah. I think it's just further proof that they're destined for each other. That's right. Like yes. they're just so compatible because they like then because they can recognize that in each other because that's what they do. So yeah, they like right. they can help mediate that and game recognize game. That's, that's why when they have conversations yes. with each other, it's so funny and interesting <laughs> and there's so much tension because they're both trying to control the conversation and that's not how conversations work. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Gerard suggests that by the time Scott finds Styles, he'll be bloody and beaten to a pulp. Man, did you guys see the muscle in Gerard's jaw while he was talking? Very intense. So intense. Styles says that Gerard is so old that Styles could probably beat him in a fight, but he's quickly proven wrong. Just like the Bob Barker fight in Happy Gilmore, man. Yeah, only not hilarious. It's always hilarious to get beat up by an old man. Yeah, how else would Clint Eastwood still have a career? This often comes up in fanfic, but like, especially post season two, like canon divergent stories. But how many injuries do you think are from Gerard that are like hidden in Styles' clothes? Like he like wears, like he comes home and he's wearing like plaid pajama pants and a huge shirt. Like, I think he's compensating for hiding something. He looks exhausted when he shows up. Like how, like, I can't even imagine like how much he went through other than just like the bruises on his face. Canon confirmation that Styles is a part of Derek's pack. The whole point with like getting Styles is threatening Scott, but also 
like scaring styles as a human to like not hang out with werewolves and he explains about erica and boyd like they're never going to give Derek up because he's their alpha. Like, and then that line would directly apply to the scene and then give context to Styles not giving Derek up as in Styles being one of like Derek's betas basically. And that would be amazing. That would be amazing. And it would make Scott's betrayal at the end of the episode so much more powerful because it would make Scott the odd one out. And like Isaac yeah. is like shifting allegiances, but he's still one of Derek's betas. He still fights for him. Yeah. So like mm -hmm. that would make it so much more powerful. Like the difference in, like loyalty and the relationship differences between Scott and Derek and Styles and Derek. Yeah. I would like to know whether Erica and Boyd would have considered giving Derek up if given the opportunity. Gerard wasn't party to these conversations that occurred mm. between Erica Boyd and Derek where they were like, we don't want you as an alpha anymore. Yeah. So he doesn't know that's the case. He's basing his information on what he's experienced with PAX previously, we assume. And I would assume that most of the packs that he's tried to get betas to turn on their alphas, those are whole packs where they were in the pack, they wanted to stay in the pack, and they really did want to protect their alpha. And I don't say this as a criticism of Erica and Boyd, but just from a character perspective, I'm really interested to know whether it crossed their minds. Scott is shocked to discover that Peter is back from the dead, and Derek is not trusting him exactly, but willing to listen about his plan to save Jackson. I do feel like, to add real fast, <laughs> that Scott, when Peter walks out should have just been like, what? <laughs> you know, but again, it, we, we've already established that no one really reacts like people <laughs> in this episode or most of the season. Seriously. Or so, I, um, I kind of would have thought it was funny if he comes in, he just goes, nope, and leaves. <laughs> no, not doing this again. No. I, this was over like five weeks yeah. ago. Okay. Not yep. doing it The answer is no. The answer is yep. no for me. That's a yeah. no for me. The answer is no. <laughs> Derek reminds Scott that he was the one working with Gerard. Um, that's like totally different. Yeah, that was my secret that I was keeping. Okay, yeah. The difference is that for all that Scott talks shit about Derek not telling him stuff, Derek is the one who's sharing this information with Scott right away. As soon as he got back on his feet after Peter used him, Derek took Deaton's advice and went to find and help Scott. He and Scott didn't get a chance to talk after that because Scott kind of left Derek partially paralyzed in a room, slowly filling with smoke. But as soon as Peter showed up again at the Hill House, Derek immediately comes here and tells Scott. I don't think Derek's point here is you should never have worked with Gerard since Gerard threatened him. I think his point is more, maybe you shouldn't throw stones from your glass house about me feeling like I need to deal with Peter to keep more people from dying. I finally get to witness firsthand the magic that is a Kate Kalvenspiel. I'm deeply ah. honored and totally fangirling on the inside. I mean, Phyllis can testify to that. I send in all caps, like, keep talking, say more, say more. I want all of it. I want all of Kate Colvin preach my ma'am. Yes. <laughs> that is absolutely true. 100%. Thank you. Scott quickly explains to Isaac who Peter is. Just summarizes it there. Yeah. Isaac's <laughs> like, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> I feel like this might be the first like very noticeable instance from the show of it's just like it's Beacon Hills. I'm not surprised kind of acceptance because like yeah. at, at, at this point, you'd think that that would be just like the norm. Like, oh, we don't need to have reasons or context. It's just this is life now. The most immediate problem, Scott reports, is that Jackson is already dead. Man, just no one really cared, huh? Derek looks like he kind of cared a little bit though. Like it, like the baffling thing, it's like less, how is he dead right now? Because like, they're going to find some way to do that. Like that's not as surprising. And more, it's about like, 
how do you talk about a classmate's death like that? Like considering his existing trauma and how he's had like all he's had all of that building up for years and years and years. And it's just getting tossed about like Jackson forgot to come to the game or something. Like, how do you just like, he like, forgot to be oh, alive. <laughs> <laughs> he forgot to be alive. And Scott and Isaac are just like, could be worse. It literally cannot, cannot get worse, except it can because he then is transforming into this giant demon thing. So yeah. still in their defense, Jackson is a massive piece of shit. So well, <laughs> but this is a valid point. Yeah, it does kind of take me back to season one in Lunatic when Derek swoops in and saves Jackson and Allison from Scott. Like from Derek's perspective, he doesn't have to have skin in that game. I mean, Jackson's a piece of shit who grabbed him without his consent. I mean, he made his displeasure very clear via his claws. Um, so, you know, there's that. And then you have Allison, who's part of this Hunter family that murdered, or at least a member of her Hunter family, murdered Derek's family. And then you have Scott, who left him for dead as the most recent thing that happened between them. And mm -hmm. yet here he is to keep Scott from making a huge, possibly fatal to himself mistake in murdering these two. And I really like to imagine Derek on his way to where Scott and Jackson and Allison are. I just picture him being like, God damn, Scott, I'm not gonna, you know what? I'm not even gonna interfere. I'm just gonna get there and I'm gonna watch him make the mistake that I've been telling him this whole time he was gonna make. I'm not even gonna do anything. I'm just gonna stand there. And then he gets there and he's like, I'm gonna do it, aren't I? God damn it. God damn it, Scott. I feel like with that instance, it's like Allison and Jackson were not in the game at that point where they, they are just innocent people. But I feel like kind of at this point, it's like, well, Jackson's in this now, buddy, because of your teeth on his sexy hip. But it's just like, you know, he knew what he was getting into. So I mean, he did. That so is accurate. Derek, let's not pretend. Derek gave them all the rundown, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Jackson had already dealt with hunters and everything like all. Right. So he was like, I know what I'm getting into. It's like, well, then you're shit now. And <laughs> that's kind of how this works. And Jackson also like showed up and was basically like, you owe me this. Oh, yeah. Which we've talked about this before. I feel like is one of Derek's many uh, weaknesses is that he doesn't like the idea of being beholden to someone. And so he was kind of like, okay, fine. You're right. I do owe you. I'll do this. And then we'll be even. He was, he didn't just like track down Jackson and be like, Hey, I'm going to bite you. Jackson was like kicking in his barely existent door and you're being like, you owe me. I helped you with your uncle. There is red in your ledger, sir. That's Jackson. But if Jackson dying is what Gerard wanted to happen, it's no cause for relief, Peter says. No one's upset Jackson's dead. Scott doesn't even seem that upset that Styles is gone. Like he already seems to have gotten. If Allison has taught us anything about Scott, it's how easily distracted he gets, especially when it comes to forgetting Styles. Yeah, I have a yeah. hard time forgiving Scott for that. Yeah. I have a hard time forgetting forgiving Scott for a lot of things. And then I go back and I watch and I'm like, oh no, he's totally good. In like season five, he's like, okay, he's fine. And then it's like, no, no, no. It's because everything got glossed over because he did a lot of good things and just never apologized for the bad things. So the bad things didn't get brought back up. Yeah. Also, this is going to sound a little bit werewolf racist and I don't mean it that way because I think that Scott was this way before he became a werewolf. But 
sometimes I feel like sometimes I feel like Scott is a little bit like Doug from Up, where he'll be like, "We really need to talk about how Styles is missing and Squirrel." <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Valid. Hundred percent. And sometimes it's adorable, but sometimes in situations like this, you're like, "Nobody, you really need to keep your eyes on that prize." Yes. When no one is at risk of like dying, being maimed, or seriously injured, like. As long as that's not the case, then it's like, oh, it's really cute. Especially like, especially with like Isaac and Allison. Like, it's like, oh, that's what you're paying attention to right now. Even though like Styles is talking to you about something. That's kind of cute though, because obviously you're in love and it's adorable. So right. yes. it's literally right. puppy love, literally yeah. puppy love. Yes. <laughs> Chris is likely to agree. He can't get Argent to share his end game and he can't get Allison to see the potential dangers of going along with Gerard blindly. Am I adopted? I was going to say maybe it skips a generation, but then I totally forgot like about Kate there, you know? Very true. Mm-hmm. Ah, he's just I feel like, like we finally one. hit like the like the trigger point for Chris's defection from the Argent Hunter party, I guess. I think that this is like he like gets up in our he gets up in Gerard's face. He like gets up there and he's angry and he's seeing the effect it has on its daughter. Like it kind of sucks that it took like his daughter becoming more like his dad to like mm-hmm. get him to realize that instead of like seeing the signs sooner but like he's finally he's finally had that like connection point and I think this is what shifts into him becoming such a prominent and like successful character throughout the series yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that cognitive dissonance finally reached a fever pitch yes. here where it was like I can't close my eyes to this anymore that because that's kind of the trajectory we've seen him on previously that we can see the moments that where the cognitive dissonance is so clear on his face. You can almost hear like two piano keys that aren't supposed to be played at the same time being played in the background as this expression flits over his very handsome visage. Um, <laughs> but this is the point where he's like, I can't resolve this in my head anymore. I can't rationalize this anymore. Yeah. And you're right. It is unfortunate that it took this long because it it feels like what happened with Kate at the end of season one should have taken him far enough away from Gerard's brand of hunting that it shouldn't have taken this long, mm-hmm. but it did. Yeah, it did. It, it had to involve Allison yeah. is, is the bottom line. Yeah. Allison just insists that everything is Derek's fault from Kate to Victoria to Jackson. Wait, All how is Derek's Kate fault? Derek's fault? Yeah. It's legit one of the worst things Allison has ever done. And she's had, she's had some bad moments, but I think of all of the characters, she's had a lot of good like redemption points too. And she kind of bounces out. She like has guilt. She has regret. And I think like whether or not we get a direct apology or not, she seems to feel more like regret towards that than like Scott does, for instance. But like, She's literally blaming things, blaming Derek for things that he is not at all responsible for. Like he, he doesn't know how to be an alpha. He wasn't raised to be an alpha. It's speculated, but like, it doesn't seem like he was raised to be an alpha raised for that position, right? He's in it. And now like, he doesn't, he doesn't know how to balance any of this. He's doing it like blindly, despite being raised in like a werewolf family. So you could assume that he's supposed to know what he's doing, but he definitely doesn't. And he doesn't deserve any of the blame that he's getting. And Allison's just like poking at him because she's hurt. Like, right. Like her mother died. Okay. His mother burned alive because of your aunt, along with 10 other members of his family, which he blames himself for. So I, you, you like as, as awful as it is to compare like losses between like, between people, like 
your mom died because she was trying to kill someone. His family died because your aunt hated who they were. Like that's right. not, that yeah. doesn't equal each other. I mean, right. Victoria died because she hated what they were because she didn't have to die. She right. got bit. Yeah, yeah. If she anything, I would say that Derek showed great restraint in yeah. not killing Victoria yes. during that fight. And also, I think generally you're correct that you shouldn't try to compare losses. However, in this particular situation, Allison is the one who opened that Pandora's box because at the end of season one, she says that thing about if someone murdered my family, I wouldn't turn into a total psycho like Derek being the implication there. Lies. Because at that point, she's still considering the possibility that that Derek killed people because of his family's murders. And it's like, Allison, girlfriend, you are so wrong. You're as wrong as you are beautiful. Which is very. Which is very. <laughs> I really like that and seeing that like now in like television, in fiction, because I think that that is really powerful because I think it's the perspective of the fan. Like when they're, when we're reading stuff, when we're watching stuff and we're like, if I existed in this moment, that's not how I would react. But like, you haven't existed. You haven't experienced anything remotely like that. You haven't experienced total destruction. You haven't experienced extreme loss like that in those situations. Like when you think, oh, like if there's going to be a, if there's going to be a fire drill or if something happens to like my bus driver, like I'm going to get up there, I'm going to take control of the bus. Like I wouldn't like sit there and do nothing like you might see in like television. Like there's a reason bystanders exist. And that's because like, that's the thing that happens in life. And a lot of fans think that they're going to react immediately and they're going to be the hero, just like the characters that they love. But that's not something that is definitive. And that's not something that you can know for sure is going to happen. And I think like seeing that in television kind of defines the fan experience in a way. And that was really cool. Yeah, that's true. I didn't really think of it in that way, but that is true. The the armchair analysis, like it's easy for you to say as you sit here cozily in your living room <laughs> streaming the show, yeah. but would it actually feel that way? Yeah. In this conversation with Allison, Chris tries to bring up Scott, but Allison just asks since when he cares about Scott. Since when do you care about Scott, lady? I recently being, of course, but come on. Yeah, this season has a lot of people caring about things only when it's convenient, which I guess is kind of human nature. I can just imagine Styles calling up from the basement. Tell me about it, woman. Like, <laughs> literally. <laughs> no one cares about Scott like I do, okay? We are bros for life. Exactly. <laughs> no take backs. You right. met in the sandbox and that's the end of everything. You meet in the sandbox. You die at the same Always. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Allison argues that what she's currently doing is actually what Chris has always wanted. Grab it, Chris. She's 16. You can take away her car. Yeah. Allison even reminds Chris that he owes her a new bow because he shot her old one out of her hands when she nearly killed Boyd. Chris says he owes her a new crossbow too, revealing that he's broken her current crossbow with his hands. Yeah, I didn't mind that. You know, that's probably the closest that Chris has gotten to grounding Allison. And the yeah. closest that he's had to controlling her. Yeah. Like yeah. that, like he is, he is effectively like restraining her in the way that he can without like, like being very subtle about it, which I think yeah. is like what Chris is about, especially with his transition oh, yeah. away from like, we hunt those who hunt us. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good, that was a good Chris impression. Spot on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Having ridden in the ambulance with Jackson's body to the morgue, Melissa gets a front row seat to what seems to be the next phase of Jackson's transformation. Like a Pokemon. He's evolving. Yes, but 
more importantly, Melissa's hair is so curly and lustrous in this scene. So beautiful. Like her hair, like I'll, like they, they do the hair for like the women so well in the show. I mean, I mean the guys too, but like, I'm just like mesmerized. Like you just, ha- you got the perfect waves. You've got the curls. It's all like perfectly managed. And I know that that's not like in real life. Like when you're like, oh, someone died and now he's turning into this thing and it's like panic mode, but she still looks amazing. She does look amazing. Everyone could be in a shampoo commercial. And I mean, she barely knows about werewolves. She barely knows that her kid is a werewolf and she's taking this entire thing in stride. She's just like, okay, box checked, moving on. Who's going to die next and how can we stop it? Yeah. Magnificent. I feel like that is medical professional energy and single mom energy and single mom energy like both of those and she is at the center of that venn diagram both of those professions if you will involve adapting to whatever nonsense is thrown at you suddenly without context whether that's you know walking a gurney through the er and it's like what is inside you versus walking through your house with your toddler and saying what is inside you <laughs> either way you really need to be able to to adapt to sudden unusual turns of events yeah yeah that definitely that reminds me of your comment kate i'm um, during melissa's date with peter um when you're talking about like oh i like she does not she obviously does not get out she doesn't like do dates very often because she's like so like there's a guy waiting at the restaurant and he's like, well, I've been here for like a half hour. And she's like, well, I've got like five people coming in with like black blood bleeding out of every orifice. I don't know what's going on. It's the fifth situation tonight. Like I right. just reminded of that. And I'm like, exactly, 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 exactly. It's Beacon Hills and she's in charge. That's right. And if that man at the restaurant was worth a damn, he would have brought her food. He would have brought right. the food there like Scott does only when he needs something, but like Scott does. Just when he needs something, but yes. He's like, can I have the car please? And she's like, I'm working. I can't give you the car right now. Melissa examines the venom dripping from the bag. All right. My first thought was don't touch it. But then, you know, she's got like a pen or a tool or something. She's not an idiot, y'all. I know. I know. She's not her son. (laughs) Oh, burn. Yeah. He must take after his dad. Oh. (laughs) I should hope so. I don't want that to overlap with her genius. Like, yeah, he, he missed. He missed it somewhere. At the Stalinsky house, the sheriff frantically makes calls, trying to find a lead on Styles. I see an all-time low poster on Styles as well. I remember that being a band. All-time low is one of my all-time faves, for sure. Styles shows up at home, physically beaten. He tells his dad that he was attacked by some players on the opposing team, prompting Stalinsky to threaten to pistol whip them. But Styles is able to talk him down. Just pistol whip Jackson. Yeah. Don't you guys just hate how bone tired styles look like bone tired seriously he looks worn down to his last levels of energy and then having to lie to his dad again especially after kidnapping jackson and getting a police van and then getting his dad Mm -hmm. fired all of this stuff that's just accumulating that is just making their relationship so much more tense after he's already lost his mom like all of that i'm just like he has to he has to lie to his dad again and i think that it's kind of like I don't, I don't get the reasoning very much. Like I can, I guess I can understand it from Styles' perspective, but his reasoning for not telling his dad, I'm like, it would be extreme advantage to tell your dad because then he can have Wolfsbane bullets in his gun and he's far more prepared than he is right now. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah. I, I'm like, he has to lie to his dad again and he looks exhausted by it. Scott, Isaac, Derek, and Peter go to the old Hale house to work on the Kanima issue. Yeah, why did all four of them, Scott, Isaac, Derek, and Peter have to go do this why couldn't it just be like peter and Derek? it's like once they get there is whenever they get the text that oh yeah styles is okay it's fine like 
they were just giving up on that. Mm-hmm. Yes, they had they had forgotten all about that. But uh, I do like Jackson's like chrysalis, that. though. That is pretty cool. It looks That's amazing. Cool. Lydia visits Styles at his house, expressing her worry about Jackson. I like the little skeleton that you can see hanging on Styles's door when he opens it to let her in. I really like Lydia's look that's worn across these two episodes, last two episodes. Yeah. Why do you think she went to Styles instead of Allison, though? Just because she thought Styles would actually listen to her? Well, she knows Allison won't listen to her. Yeah, she's already been down that road. I mean, honestly, Allison's probably already blown her off today just because she's really tense and she caught Boyd and Erica today and Allison wasn't even at the game. That's true. And like Styles in Abomination, he offers to talk to Lydia. Like he sees her crying in his car, in her car when he's trying to go inside to get to find the bestiary in Gerard's office. And he's like, I like, I want to talk to you. I have something that needs to get done immediately, but I want to talk to you. I want to support you. And I think that she, I think that she remembered that because that was a really important, that was a really important thing to see because her whole, her whole life is based around like her being the popular girl and hiding her intelligence. And she knows now that like Styles sees her differently as kind of creepy and extreme as that is, he does (laughs) see her differently. And I think that she knows that he cares about her and Allison has kind of been dropping the ball. So just like seeking comfort is probably Mm -hmm. really important for her right now. And especially looking back on that moment now that she, I mean, she doesn't know everything, but she certainly knows more than she did then. So it's, probably easier to swallow that he didn't come back out like Mm -hmm. he said he would because it's like okay whatever he was doing was probably a life or death thing which she didn't think was the case at the time yeah scott and isaac join melissa at the morgue like they don't even stay in the hill house after peter gets the laptop it's just bullshit that scott wasn't out looking it is and i'm not sure the reasoning for this yeah i mean it doesn't help that styles wasn't gone for very long but he doesn't seem like scott just doesn't seem that upset yeah, still in the locker room, he was very calm. And then when Derek and Peter get there, he should have been like, I don't have time for this. Styles is missing. Get the f- out of my way. Yeah, I feel like Derek should have had some information or said, no, something else is happening that, you know, maybe supersedes finding Styles right now in this moment. Derek would never. Or uh, by doing this other thing, we will find Styles, something that just creates conflict between the characters. Right. All we really get is a throwaway line that's like, oh, good, they found Styles. Like, Scott doesn't even, prior to that, explain to Derek and Peter that that is the situation. Yeah. When they come in, like you said, Calissa, he's not like, okay, you guys, but Styles is missing, so that's what I am going to be focusing on. Honestly, it really sets the tone for the rest of, like, Styles and Scott's relationship at the series. Lydia sits on Styles' bed, and Styles offers her toilet paper for her tears since he doesn't have any tissues. He does. It's right there behind them. He's a fucking liar. <laughs> Suspicious. I like to think he's just blustered. No, he is. attention from Lydia for the first time ever, especially because he's not even consciously thinking about the giant stash of, like, upwards of $500 in presents that he has littered over his desk area that he does not have time to cover or hide and just like lets Lydia into his room anyway and like to think that she's just not firing on all cylinders because it's like I have been in love with you for like 10 years okay I literally have like no idea how to comprehend what is happening at this moment in time you're in my room you're in my house you came looking for me uh I don't have tissues I have toilet paper also (laughs) also the tissues on the bed are for his alone time wow (laughs) well. <laughs> that, that actually i feel like after this episode aired that was pretty much a that lot of fans reaction yeah. <laughs> was, was that was like 
those, those are, are his personal special use. tissues. So, yeah. Lydia points out that he has a lot of missed calls from Scott. She asks whether Styles is ignoring him. Styles says, not really. Is he mad at Scott for not finding him in the short time he was gone? I mean, he doesn't know that Scott isn't looking, right? He knows Scott, so he just assumes. <laughs> He's trying to teach Scott a lesson about answering your phone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. I think that Styles is the character to have hope. I think that he, like, as much as he's, like, has, like, a realistic view on things, I think that, like, his relationship with Scott and the relationships that he builds, like, his loyalty is a huge part of his character. Lydia inadvertently comes across Styles' backup birthday gifts for her. Some of them are pretty extravagant. Meanwhile, Peter shows the others the Hales digitized records, which include documentation of the Canama's alpha form. It turns out that what we've seen of the Canama so far is just the beta form, and the next phase is even more terrifying. Scott and Isaac try to carry Jackson's body bag out of the morgue, but they accidentally drop him. <laughs> Scott's face. It's so cute. It is. That's one of the wonderful things about Scott being a lovable doofus. You get priceless reactions like that one. He just does a full, like, surprise Pikachu face. (laughs) It's adorable. Literally. (laughs) Copy-paste right over his face. Derek leaves to meet with Scott. Peter cautions him against going up against the Canima without Lydia there. Derek says there isn't time. There's always time for Lydia. True. There's actually a bit of a difference here from script to screen in that Peter says we need Lydia. Derek says, what do you think she's going to be able to do? Jackson could rip her in half just by looking at her. Peter replies, physical strength isn't everything, Derek. You know why we call them the weaker sex? Because it annoys us that they're so much stronger emotionally. Why didn't they keep that in? I like I want that. To, I, want, I want to see them have that conversation. That yeah, is amazing. That's good. Peter is less of a dick because he knows how to say those things. <laughs> but since time is running out, Derek vows to kill Jackson if he gets the chance. Yeah, I don't really blame you for that one. I think Derek is actually a pretty sensible character. Like, he's willing to do the hard thing if it saves people. And I think that, like, that, like, obviously that's, that ties into Kate Arjun and everything that Kate did to him. But, like, also, I think it's a sense of duty. Scott and Isaac encounter Chris. Hello, handsome. <laughs> Such a dope. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love him yes. so much. When I started teaming off, I had already watched the 100. Mm. So oh, okay. my oh. initial, like my initial understanding of J.R. Bourne was him as Russell Lightbourne in the 100. Mm-hmm. Nice. Chris says that they have a common enemy. Scott assumes he means the Canima. Ah, uh, no, I mean my daughter. She's a real bitch these days. My God. Right? <laughs> Literally. Lydia says that she wants to help Jackson, leading Styles to protest that even if she doesn't care about getting hurt, he would be devastated if anything happened to her. It's really not her job to deal with that. Yeah. I feel like he's being Derek here, though. Not the I'd go on my freaking mind part, but where he acts like he's talking about her, but he's really just projecting. He's thinking about how he's made choices without caring about potentially getting hurt. And he's now realizing what his dad would have gone through if the hunters had killed him. His dad probably would have gone out of his freaking mind. What he's saying doesn't really make sense in regards to what's going on with Lydia. I think he's talking about himself, but he doesn't want to fully process that he could have been beaten to death and his, his dad would have been alone. So he's just like putting it all on her her and how he saying this is how people would feel around her when it's really about like what would have happened to his dad right that is a way more generous and interesting interpretation of that speech yes it is well he and Derek have a lot in common so I just really feel like it makes sense to me it definitely makes a lot of sense I think like styles as we all know has like an oral fixation 
Yes. And I think that this is him like verbally processing in a way, which like ties into his ADHD as well. And I, I also said that this is something that like Derek tends to do as well. The lack of control that they both like deeply, deeply hate pushes them to do things that don't really end well. But like they also, they also like it helps them process. It helps them like see that whenever like they like know that they put it all out on the field to use a lacrosse term. <laughs> but like also like styles, I think. I think once he's able to do that and he, but he's still able to like be conscious and react to things. And he immediately responds to Lydia flinching. He steps back and apologizes. And as much as, as much as Lydia didn't deserve like all of that, like talk back um, because it's like Styles just trying to process his emotional trauma. Like it still, it still like makes me feel confident in him as a person because he like, he like recognized that what he did was like wrong almost immediately because he yeah. recognized her flinching, which is something that like Jackson doesn't do. And like Allison doesn't pick up on. And I think that like makes him like better, like as a friend for her and in general. Jackson is too handsome to be wrong. <laughs> Just doesn't work like that. Jackson is too handsome to be held accountable for his actions. Yeah. He also has too much money. <laughs> that part is very really appropriate. <laughs> yeah, that's that is unfortunately real. But, but yeah, the, the, I guess this is just the episode where we talk about the shared emotional core of Derek and Styles. I'm not mad at that at all. No, I'm not either. Chris clarifies to Scott that he means Gerard as the common enemy that he and Scott share. Gerard, he explains, is manipulating his way into Allison's head like he did with Kate. Scott says that Chris should let them take care of this then, but Chris says his car's faster. Bad Jackson got rid of that Porsche. That would have been the fastest. <laughs> he would have been half hanging out the back because the car is so small <laughs> and they'd all been jammed in there. Honestly, I feel like they should just find a flooded quarry and throw him in there. <laughs> oh. So true. I mean, like, and just the line, like, like he's just looking at him and he's like, my car's faster. Like, like he just, he's just like, it's just a throwaway line, but still it's like, yes, correct. Some people are so effortlessly cool. Yes, J.R. Born, Born is one of those people. Yeah. He can't do anything that's not cool. Not cool or not adorable. Yeah. Sometimes interchangeable. <laughs> Slinsky has a talk with a dejected Styles. Lyndon's shirt is very Freddy Cougar in this scene. It kind of drew my attention away from the emotion. <laughs> I was thinking that too. That's the second time we've said that a song's wardrobe this season. Delancey gets to tell Styles that he understands Styles is upset. He got beat up and the girl he likes is in love with someone else. But he reminds Styles that the other night he was a hero on the lacrosse field. I need a hero. <laughs> love that song. Wow. The Cherokee really is, he really is a great dad. And like he he gives the best like pep talks and he's so like patient and it's like it's just so powerful in all of the best ways because it's exactly what styles needs to hear and it's not like the sheriff actually knows that but like it's exactly what styles needs to hear and he's like he's there for him and i think that that like makes him one of like the purest of the parents here it's really good. oh yes he's a great dad yes yes derek runs onto the scene where the group has jackson's body or rather loops onto the scene on all fours oh no yeah it just looks so bad with a capital m <laughs> i love how yeah. he does a backflip though that's cool yes. yeah that's true peter rolls his eyes commenting that someone enjoys making an entrance yeah peter you <laughs> oh peter 
He's just upset that he can't top that entrance. Yeah, that's true. For a second, I thought Derek might just land in the splits, though, the way that was going. <laughs> Nailed it. Maximum effort. It is literally a biological compulsion for being a hail to have said dramatic flair. Scott asks Derek where Peter and Lydia are. Peter's lurking. He's a lurker. Lurkers be lurking. Peter has upped his lurking game this season. Yes. Derek says there isn't time to wait for Peter and Lydia because Gerard intentionally did this to Jackson to push him to the next stage of his transformation so he could use the Kanima as a killing machine. Chris protests that his father wouldn't do that. He wouldn't suffer a rabid dog to live. He absolutely would if it suited his purposes. Yeah, have you met your dad, actually? <laughs> Everything intensifies when Gerard descends onto the group with Allison and her many weapons in tow. How is anyone able to sneak up on them? They're werewolves, right? Consistency with wolf powers is severely lacking. Yeah. I feel like it's like on Walking Dead, there'll be like nothing around them and it'll turn, there's like a horde of zombies. And I'm like, how do they sneak up on you guys? Like, they're very loud. They do loud running <laughs> and groaning. There's only so far that plot convenience can go before it's just like a 4Y. <laughs> 4Y. In bringing Jackson to Derek, Scott also brought Derek to Gerard. The Canima stabs Derek in the chest. How many times does Derek get eviscerated throughout the show? Really goes back to what I was saying about how when Derek does something bad, even for the right reasons, actually, he's immediately punished by the narrative. Exactly, exactly. I've, I've consistently made the point on Twitter that Derek is around... Um, to be tortured when needed, and to take his shirt off. And that's it. Usually Very both. Mm. Usually both. Exactly. Usually both. Allison shoots Isaac with an arrow. Take it out. That's why they use arrows on werewolves. Take it out. Jackson has now fully shifted. I prefer the partial shift. Yeah, this partial shift is a really cool. I like that makeup a lot. The partial shift is like so dope. And I really like the symbolism of it also, like the Kanima and the human and how one controls and is more powerful than the other. Earlier in the season, there's the whole line about when is the Kanima not the Kanima when it's Jackson. And so there's this kind of delineation between the two. Like Jackson can be paralyzed by Kanima venom because the Kanima and Jackson are separate in a way. Mm -hmm but that's becoming less and less the case. And Peter comments in this episode that Jackson is being kind of consumed or eclipsed by the Kanima. And so I, I like that idea too, that we're seeing him more in his partial shift because the Kanima part of him is overtaking the other part. Isaac also does a full shift. It's where all look is really funny to me for some reason. It's like fuzzier. Yeah, you're right. It's fuzzy. That's what makes it so funny. Well, he he's still a baby werewolf. He's got all that peach fuzz. He's a little wolfful. Gosh, that's, is, he's adorable. He's so cute. I mean, like Isaac is cute, but like Isaac as like a werewolf is cute. I've like said this like on TikTok before. I think someone posted um someone posted a clip from the episode where they're all at the Lake Sheriff Station when like Isaac got arrested and um, like Styles is in a corner and Isaac's in a corner and he's shifted and like Derek roars at him, but like he looks like I've called him a demon sheep. <laughs> 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 years. 
and the eyes and the teeth, but it's just all like a curly disaster. And I'm like, oh my God. Cheap person, that's adorable. You're totally right. I've never, that's all I'm going to be able to think about now. Nice. (laughs) So adorable. As the fight intensifies, the Teen Wolf theme music starts playing in the background. And it's awesome. And Derek does another sweet backflip. How many backflips is that now? 91. It's probably because they realized Tyler Hecklin could just do them. They were like, ooh, do another one. Okay, do another one. Do it off the wall this time. Backflip over that prop. Through all of this, Peter is just lurking. Yeah, he's like, eh, I'm going to see how this plays out. You know how it is. It just makes me laugh every time we cut to Peter watching. Like, he should be eating popcorn or something, just being like, ooh, yeah, this is getting interesting. <laughs> or that would be fun. commentary. Mm-hmm. Like, that, like, that, you could have, like, you didn't finish the turn on that backflip. You need to try that again. And, oh, obviously, you're going to miss this. And, you know, you should have <laughs> ran at him instead of, like, ducking under his arm and spinning around because he's just going to come back at you. Like, I feel like he would be so good at that. Mm-hmm. Allison stabs Isaac in the back. Oh, poor Isaac. He didn't do anything to you, Allison. Jesus Christ. I guess the good thing is they're just knives, so he'll probably heal up okay. Gerard has the canima grab Allison by the throat. Not yet, sweetheart, he says. Wait, which one are you calling sweetheart? This is kind of hilarious, and you deserve this, Allison. I feel like Gerard legally changed his middle name to Machiavelli. Allison doesn't understand what's happening, but Scott has known for a while. Gerard is dying of cancer. He could smell it on Gerard like he could the dog at Deaton's clinic. Cancer, Isaac says. Gerard wants to become a werewolf, the very thing he despises so much. Definition of hypocrite. Mm. When it comes to surviving, he says, he'd even kill his own son. Burn, immediate cut to Chris's reaction. Gerard tells Scott to get him the bite. Derek begs him not to because Gerard will kill him after and become the alpha. I feel like Chris is standing there being like, wow, Scott, are you really going to do that while also not interfering at all? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't have the balls to stand up to my father, but I feel like you should. He's not <laughs> your dad. <laughs> okay, but Chris, like, the canama is literally holding his claws to Allison's throat. Gerard is in charge of the canama, and he can't shoot the canama with his guns because Allison is in front of the canama. So, like, he can't, he can't interfere because he's trying to protect Allison. That's true. That's true. That's true. There are multiple characters in this scene, though, that it feels like they're kind of like, oh, well, it's Derek. But uh, but where's Peter? Shouldn't he be like tiptoeing up behind Gerard and ripping his head off right now? Like he cares for it. That's true. Okay, but like how often do we see Derek so vulnerable that he begs like he he's always like we've talked about him being in control like even with Kate where he thinks like no one's gonna know where he is no one's gonna find him like he's still like being like snarky but like he is begging Scott not to and I don't think I think it's less about him trying to hold on to the alpha power now and more about like trying to save his life and knowing that Gerard being in control of his betas is just gonna lead to them dying also and just right. lead to the collapse of Beacon Hills and like the look on his face it's horrifying he's literally begging for his life and that that is a terrifying thing to think about because like like Derek does not allow himself to ever be that vulnerable right and like even and like especially if like Styles had gotten there earlier like if he had been there I feel like he would put himself bodily between them regardless of whether he's figured out that he actually cares about Derek or not I think that like Styles would recognize that and like 
Allison's at risk, but Styles is also like he's very he like works quickly on his feet, and I think that that would just like lead to something really intense. Like, are you willing to kill this human being in order to get what you want? Gerard says that the ultimate prize for Scott is Allison, and they can be together if Scott does this for Gerard. Derek is the only piece that doesn't fit. Oh, this bit breaks my heart. No argument from Derek. There would be argument from Styles, though. He, I think he understands the alpha position like better than anyone who hasn't physically been an alpha. Um, and he probably would still be like kind of insulting about Derek, but still like <laughs> protective of him just because I think he understands, especially because he's he saw like Erica and Boyd like being captured, but not giving up their alpha, like needing him in some way to protect them. I think that that like Styles resonates with that so much. And regardless of whether he realizes how he cares about Derek, that's important. Yeah, I mm-hmm. definitely would see Styles being like, Yes, he's really grumpy. And yes, he doesn't know how to have a conversation like a person. And yes, he lurks in the shadows and just stares at people like a weirdo. And yes, they're like, okay, yeah, we know. We know Styles get to the point. He also doesn't know how to use doors. Or stairs. Or stairs. He only jumps (laughs) over the stairs. They're simply an inconvenience or a tool to look more dramatic. That's right. Derek weakened from fighting the Canima, Scott puts his claws in the back of Derek's neck and forces his jaws open to make him bite Gerard. Ah, uh, Scott, you really got to learn about the greater good, buddy. It's like it turns him into a chomp chomp toy. <laughs> Chris is over here like, this is f***ed up as he just watches the events play out. <laughs> yeah. No longer have autonomy over my body and actions. This definitely isn't triggering me and giving me a major emotional relapse. Yeah. That's really the, the through line of of Derek's story for so much of the show is just like Derek desperately trying to regain some form of control and serve the greater good. And the narrative is just consistently like, no, you shan't. Things don't go as planned for Gerard, however. How long does he have to see everyone's reaction to be like, wait, is something wrong? <laughs> yeah. It does take him a little bit. And like, it's the bite is like, it's like here. So it's like on one side of the arm and the other side, like it's around. So you'd think that yeah. he'd see the blood from his perspective also, and maybe even feel it coming down from his face too. You'd think yeah. that there would be like context clues just of his person rather than everyone else's reactions yeah he was so busy being smug like he He was was. being he was devoting a hundred percent of himself to smugness he was like in his head thinking about what shakespeare am i going to quote next yes yes i feel like that makes him so similar to peter too oh yeah i feel like peter would have this reaction like i am the alpha now i'm like no bro calm down (laughs) you're fine oh my gosh It turns out that the real master plan was Scott's. When Gerard dropped his pillbox at the sheriff's station and Scott picked it up, he quickly replaced Gerard's medication with mountain ash capsules, causing Gerard's body to reject the bite. Yeah, I think Deaton actually came up with this plan. Gerard's line of mountain ash is so iconic. Absolutely. I'm like also curious, like we don't don't get a ton of context for the things that we know about werewolves and why especially with stuff like mountain ash. Um, and I'm like curious, like Wolfsbane is also poisonous to human beings. Does mountain ash not have like the same reaction with humans? And like, how does it like bind to Gerard's body? 
Like, like it does, it obviously doesn't replace his medication in the way that it's supposed to work. So like, how did that work? And how did like, how did we know that like consuming mountain ash and then being bitten tried to be turned into a werewolf? How did we know that would work and it wouldn't just like flush out of a system or whatever? Because there weren't that many capsules in the little thingy. Like all of his, all of his refills are not in his little thing that he carries around. They're all at home with the actual medications. Yeah. So like, I feel like that work? creepily, Deaton already knew the answer to this. Yeah. And that is the more terrifying question. Why did you already know the yeah. details of how much mountain ash needed to be given to a person for their body to reject the bite? I never liked Deaton. I always thought he was evil. I thought he was the alpha in the first season. I thought I thought that Deaton, I thought he knew too much. I'm like, Deaton's the alpha. And he's he's not giving any information. But then he like knows about werewolves and he's like, oh Scott, you okay, bud? And I'm like, um <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I have uh, many questions, sure sir many many questions for deaton and i know i'm never gonna get a straight answer from him ever <laughs> ever ever so so black blood spews out of gerard's mouth i didn't need that it was creepier when it was just dripping yeah it looks like a weird fountain it's just too much coming up out of him like that i'd like to point out that he's not dead though no he's not too theatrical a little too hail <laughs> <laughs> Still on the ground, Derek asked why Scott didn't tell him about the plan. Scott says it's because he may be an alpha, but he's not Scott's alpha. That isn't like an that. answer. <laughs> Scott is such a twat. Yes, that, that's, as Kate said, that didn't answer the question, buddy. If anything, it just proves how much Scott isn't to be trusted. And I mean, the look on Derek's face, it tears me apart and makes me so furious because not, Scott doesn't even apologize. It's like he doesn't even feel bad about it. And oh, I'm yeah. Like, no. Yeah. He should have apologized so eventually. His face is just so sad. Apart. So sad. It's interesting though, because um going back to the script, it says, going back to like whenever Scott uses him as a chomp toy, it says hauling the weakened Derek up to his feet. Scott looks almost hypnotized by his own regrettable actions. And then after everything happens, it says, only Scott. Only Scott watches unblinkingly, knowing and expecting the effect. Derek peers at him with a mixture of shock and, most surprisingly, respect. So it has him looking at Scott, like, with respect for what he did. I don't think that's what we got. I think this is the most emotion we've ever physically seen from Derek Hale, but also it's the most tragic emotion we've ever seen from Derek Hale. It seems like it's very much betrayal, in my opinion, not respect. Yeah, I, I mean, I wonder if Tyler Hecklin was just like, I don't know about that, so I'm yeah. just yeah, going like, to take it a different direction. Because that's I, that doesn't make sense to me for Derek. We, like, see the physical respect. Like, we see that when, um, like, when they hunt down Lydia in Venomous. And they're like, oh, you want to, like, give her, like, the thing? And, like, oh, she's the Canima. And, like, but then they all come out of the house, and Derek's like, oh, I see you, like, you're already an alpha in your own respect of your own pack. And he's, like, kind of respectful of Scott like that. Like, we see that before. So you think there's yeah. context for that, and that's not what we get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think this, I, because I think that makes so much more sense in that situation, that Derek is like, we disagree on how this needs to get done, but I can see that you are trying to take some responsibility finally, and I can respect that. This situation doesn't feel like the right situation to feel respect for Scott mm-hmm. because Trauma. he he could have told Derek frankly he could have asked Derek like if it comes down to this will you let me do it and I feel like Derek would have said yes yeah mm-hmm. absolutely 
And I feel like Scott probably knew that, but didn't want to tell him. Yeah. And it, 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 if he had telegraphed respect and less so betrayal, it wouldn't have really made sense to me. And I don't think it would have been as poignant of a scene. I still can't watch it. Like I, I like, I have to like, no, I'm just going to listen. Cause I can't oh. actually look at his face like that. It's awful. With Lydia in the passenger seat, Styles drives his Jeep into the warehouse, hitting Jackson. How do you know to drive in there right at that time? Hot convenience. Do you think that after the events of the first season, Styles has microchips, Scott? Like, like <laughs> I not. really hope so. <laughs> Me too. My my grandfather likes to say necessary for plot development, so I've since adopted that phrase, and um, this this applies. Nice. Yep. Lydia returns. Jackson's house key, triggering the memory of the night he gave it to her. So that's where I left that. I think this is the first time we see Lydia in jeans. This must have been the time that Barbara was talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, but this is actually so like significant for Lydia and Jackson's relationship because most of what we've seen through the show has been the toxicity of their relationship and how they're like captain of the lacrosse team, most popular girl in school. But it this like really shows the other side of toxic relationships and why people stay. Like there's still love, or there once was real love, and I think that gives like a really important context to their relationship. Right. In the flashback, Jackson and Lydia cuddle in bed, and Jackson gives her his house key. Lydia teases Jackson for giving it to her so quickly. Well, it is our second date. But Jackson just says that he wants her to be able to get in. Lydia figures this means he wants to make her a more accessible booty call. I just don't buy it. I don't buy this scene. Yeah, I don't believe any of this. It just does not make sense or feel correct based on everything else we've seen before. Jackson's not a trusting person. And like giving Lydia a key to his house and access to him like that in his space, which is probably his comfort zone, like... That, that's a lot. That means a lot. So I think that that just doesn't apply here. Yeah. Doesn't she yeah. understand that his posing mirror is right over there? <laughs> so very disrespectful. In the present, Lydia assures Jackson that she still loves him. So Jackson offers himself up to be killed. I gotta say though, this dude is ripped. Very He's ripped. a brilliant actor. Oh yeah. Like, you can see, you can see the recognition on his face and like, he doesn't even nod. He doesn't like, he just has this look. And like, I didn't, I didn't notice it the first time I watched it, but during my rewatch, I was like, wait, oh, cause so he's consenting to this. Like that was like, how he understands this. So he, he has, there's some souls or some heart in there somewhere. Oh yeah. Probably yeah. more because it applies to Lydia than anything else, but like it still exists. And that was like, whoa. It was really good. Derek and Peter spring into action, fatally stabbing Jackson with their claws. Seems inconsistent. Why is this enough to stop him? Derek got Jackson's claws through his chest and recovered, and and he wasn't paralyzed, by the way. I just remembered, like, you know, whenever the cannibal attacked him previously. Does the next stage not really have the whole, like, I don't know. I don't know. I I thought he was, just because, like, that's how Scott got control of Derek, and, like, he had to pull him up and hold him up by the back of the neck 
And like, that's why like Derek had like, that's why Scott had physical control over Derek with like the bite scene is what I was thinking. Oh, I thought you just had got his ass kicked super thoroughly. Because <laughs> there's the fight in between those two. Right. Yeah, there's... yeah. I wonder if it was like a delayed effect just because it feels like like Jackson has just like come back to life. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if it was like a delayed like, oh, like not everything's firing on all cylinders, but we're still like cannibal mode. I don't mm-hmm. know. Or maybe Derek had started building up an immunity to cannabis venom like he did to electricity. Oh, mm, true, yeah. painful but true. Yeah. Um, I think this is this is just what is required of the we know how to stop him with Lydia's help plan because we don't have any context for that. We just know that we need Lydia and Peter and Derek supposedly know what they're doing. Allison and Scott hold hands and all is forgiven. Yep, that's true love. Scott is such a hypocrite. Apologies are only required when you already didn't like the other person, mostly. Yeah. If you're already already in love, it it doesn't apply. Right. Derek comforts a visibly upset Isaac by patting his shoulder. Oh, I love that. I know Isaac needs a lot more cuddles than that, but Derek was really trying. He always tries good. He tries very good. I really couldn't expect more from him, especially like in this moment, because of all moments in this episode... This one has to be the one where he's most like stuck in his head about what happened, but he's still for his beta. But he's still like, Isaac is sad. I'm going to pat his shoulder. Tapping into those alpha instincts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But Derek and Peter trying to kill Jackson just precipitates his transformation, not into an alpha canima, but a reborn beta werewolf. Jackson fully looks like the Terminator rising up here. And Jackson got everything he wanted without having to grow as an individual. Yep. And Scott doesn't say, thank God you're alive and hug Styles because he's too busy holding hands with attempted murderess, Allison Argent. Ugh. But later, Allison apologizes to Scott while also breaking up with him. Well, she needs some time to figure herself out, that's for sure. Scott actually says in this scene that she doesn't have to say she's sorry. And it's fine if he feels that way about himself, but she should still go out and do an apology tour to everyone uh, that she shot with arrows. And also Derek. Very much Derek. He was just saving Scott's life, which is probably more than Scott would do for him at this point anyway. Even this one little bit of apology that we get from Allison, it's really mature and responsible of her to like have that like, Oh, I was just like extremely manipulated by my grandfather through my emotional trauma of my mother dying. And um, I obviously do not have the capacity in any way, shape or form for a relationship. And I'm like kind of proud of that, especially for her, like being a child like that, just having any of that like self-awareness was amazing. Yeah, yeah, true. Scott says he can wait for her. Chris comes into Allison's room and holds Allison as Scott leaves. Oh, dad, I, I stabbed so many people. That's okay. You don't have to apologize. (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) Boyd and Erica escape the Argent's basement, but they're soon surrounded by mysterious figures. Did Styles ever tell anyone they were captured? Oh, I think. Well, I I think Styles knew that they were like leaving the territory. They didn't want to be with Derek, and also like he's never he's never experienced anything like this before. He's a kid, and with all the adrenaline of like. The Canama is on the loose and it could it could definitely kill people that he cares about because Gerard's in charge of it. And it wasn't really like at the forefront of him because it seems like Chris let them escape. So I think Styles was always planning on going back for them until he realized they were gone. 
So I think like Salzburg blocked out the traumatic memory of him almost dying and like seeing his classmates being tortured and also knew that they didn't want to be in Beacon Hills anymore. So like assuming that they left, especially with said experience of traumatic torture. Um, but it could also be him focused like on Lydia in a very Scott Allison kind of way. I was just, I was just going to say, I do, I do think we have to, uh, hold styles accountable for being distracted by anything, especially by Lydia, if that is the case. Um, but it also feels like maybe this and Scott low-key forgetting that Styles was missing for part of it is partially a consequence of how much is being fit into this episode yeah. that there isn't really time to have characters take a breath and experience the emotional stakes of what's happening um which I think is unfortunate because the whole point of building a plot is to apply emotional stakes to the characters. And if the plot takes up so much time that you can't sit in those emotional stakes. Yeah. You've kind of, I mean, that's the whole point, you know? Right. It really is. I think that he would have, as soon as he let his dad know he was okay, I think he would have tried telling everyone about Erica and Boyd before he even got distracted by Lydia, before she even showed up. I feel like he would have been focused on that because that's just who Styles is. Yeah. He really is, yeah. Elsewhere, Dean examines the scene after the others have left. With murder gloves. (laughs) Just then, a pair of boots enter into his line of sight. Murder boots. They belong to Morel, who tells him that she never liked him being retired anyway. Ah, she always looks so fantastic. Meanwhile, Peter shows Isaac the swastika-like Triskelion symbol painted on the door of the Hale House, indicating that a new threat has arrived, an alpha pack. Peter explains that this alpha pack is why Derek was in such a hurry to build his own pack. With the immediate threat passed, though Gerard has yet to be found, Scott and Stiles go back to discussing their stalled love lives and practicing lacrosse. Hey, Stiles, I like those Adidas you got. Yeah, Dylan O'Brien did too. He wore them for like 10 years, like the entire course of the show. <laughs> I think oh, he just yeah. recently changed to pink sneakers. Nice. <laughs> uh, they're iconic pink sneakers. Oh yeah, I love them. I'm just saying like, yeah. I think he just t- finally retired the Adidas to switch to those. Nice. Scott suggests that Styles try to ask Liddy out instead of continuing his 10 to 15 year plan to get her to fall in love with him. Well, now's definitely not a good time to ask her out. Yeah, she- not now, not now. Scott realizes he's back to how he started before he became a werewolf. No popularity, no girlfriend, no lacrosse stardom. Styles says that at least Scott has him. Yeah, I can't get behind shipping Scott and Styles. Scott just is too much of a dick to Styles for how good of a friend Styles is to him. Yeah, I agree. But I do love the song that plays during this scene, though. It's uh, my second favorite song of the show, and it's a a great ending to a great episode to a great season. Yeah, very true. I have a couple other notes uh, from script to screen that I thought were interesting. Um, After Jackson dies, um, it says, only when his hand opens and releases the key to the ground does Lydia finally let him lie. As gently as he can, Styles takes Lydia's arm and helps her up. She turns into him, trying to find comfort in his arms. So she, he actually, like, comforts her, whereas, like, on the episode, he, like, steps forward, 
but then before he actually gets to her, Jackson is already rising up. Also, um, it just says, finally, Lydia runs into Jackson's arms. Scott and the others breathe in relief, except for Styles. And then it has a whole style saying, he scratched my deep. It doesn't say anything like, you know, like the tears in his eyes or any sort of detail. And I just feel like, you know, Dylan O'Brien just really killed it in that scene. Yeah. Like how distraught he looked. I think he, he just understands styles. So the part about the EMT that I thought was interesting is at the end, whenever Erica and Boyd are getting surrounded by the werewolves, it says a woman dressed in black stands at the opposite edge of the clearing. Stepping into the light, she's immediately recognized as the ambulance driver who allowed Melissa to ride along to the hospital. Erica and Boyd look on her confused, especially since she does not seem at all surprised to see them. The woman says lost. And then they slowly back up and then it reveals like all the others. That's cool. Oh, that's cool. Wow. And last thing I thought was kind of interesting is that um, they, when they talk about the alpha symbol, it says it's the triple headed symbol known as a Trisclay, but different than the one tattooed on to Derek's back. It's sharper, more aggressive. I guess I never really thought of it as like that. I was like, it looks like a swastika. I know. I was just yeah. thinking swastika. I didn't really think of it like being a more aggressive version of Derek's symbol. I mean, aggressive in like a Nazi sort of way. <laughs> yeah. I think it's ironic how it takes away from the way that symbol looks like the revenge symbol. Mm-hmm. Just because oh. um, because the Triskelet has the spirals, but like the Alpha Pack symbol, it's sharp. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's interesting how like it took away from revenge and now just makes it seem more malicious and more without reason that they're just like we are to be more powerful we are to be more aggressive and yeah there's not like context for that yeah yeah That's and cool. and i think the fact that it has a triple spiral element would make it really offensive to derek because that's the symbol of the hill pack and mm-hmm. so it's like perverted it in yeah. some way yeah. yeah. Which also kind of has a connection to the swastika because that symbol had a pre-existing meaning before it was co-opted by the Nazi party. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Master Plan. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. There's no such thing as fate. There's no such thing as werewolves. All right, Wolfies. Now we're going to jump over to our interview with Jeff Davis, the creator of Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. I remember there was a certain point in season one um, after we'd shot the pilot where uh, the cast had kept getting asked by press uh, what they thought of the original movie as compared to the TV show and hardly any of them had seen it. So I sat them all down and we did like a screening of the original movie at my place. Oh wow! And I just remember when it was finished, there was a shocked silence in the room. <laughs> and I think it was Hecklin who turned and said, that's not our show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's, really confused. Yeah. It. I mean, the show is 180 degrees from the movie. It's like we took the. It's like you took the title and two character names, and you changed the name of the town, and just yeah. start over, blank page it, and see what happens. Do you have any fun memories from season two that you'd like to share? 
the, the word fun is, uh, I'm not sure it's like the adequate, the right word to use for season two because season two was so hard to do. I mean, we, it was our second season in Atlanta and we were shooting in frigid cold so much of the time. Um, we were far too ambitious for our budget. Um, and I, I actually, there was a snowstorm where I had to go in and tell the crew, look, if any of you feel uncomfortable staying here and you want to get home, please go. And some people left, but others were like, ah, I'll stay. And that was like one of the, the worst storms in Atlanta's history, I think, since the last hundred years. So we had a lot of challenges making that show, making the second season, but it was really like, it was fun when everything came together. It was fun when uh, the, the scenes worked. Um, I remember being up very late at night, struggling to finish scripts and pages. And there were some rewrites that uh, came pretty late, came pretty down the wire, <laughs> but uh, we got it done. And uh, I mean, one of the other difficulties is, and I know we're talking about this finale, is Russell got sick. Uh, during the shoot of the finale of the, of the last episode. So not sure how much the DGA cares if I say this now, but that episode is actually mostly shot, uh, mostly directed by me and Tim. So I, once I was finished with the, uh, the writing, finally hand in, when I, whenever I hand in the finale, I always sort of like uh, vanish for a day or two because I'm sleeping because I'm so exhausted and so relieved to have writing done. Um, but at that point, Russell was in the hospital. He was pretty sick. He had a bad virus and um, we were going to visit him in the hospital. He was supposed to be prepping and they, we had we had a schedule to meet. So um, I, I talked to him and I said, well, how would you shoot this? And how would you shoot that? <laughs> and, and we discussed like the scenes and stuff. And I sent him... I, I used like action figures because uh, there were so many people we had to shoot. Um, and I used my phone to do some shots and like would send them to Russell and he'd look at them in the hospital and he'd be like, yeah, that looks good, go for it. Nice. So um, there's actually, I mean, I looked at the, the episode again and I'm like, oh yeah, I shot that. I shot that too. That was definitely <laughs> Tim, not me. <laughs> That was so interesting. He yeah. talked a little bit about like, yeah, his experience with the finale and how much it meant to him that everyone came and visited him while he was in the hospital. And everything. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's really cool that you actually stepped in and did some of the scenes. Didn't know that. Well, it made me realize just how good Russell is at his job as well and how much prep really means. Because when you show up on set um, with no idea of what you're doing, it's like, all right, let's put the camera here and just say the lines. <laughs> Can move it a little bit. Can we move the camera like this? Sure. <laughs> so um, some are some of the shots are better than others, but um, uh, it gave me a very new appreciation. I'd always done pickups here and there, um, but it gave me a real appreciation for just how much those guys do in so little time with so little resources. Um, but as for fun memories, it's it's always things like, I mean, Orny and the Independence Day speech. 
<laughs> yes. so we had to we had to cut it down so much in order to not actually have to pay uh, royalties or or a fee to Fox, but we were still able to get quite a bit in there. <laughs> I remember them saying, "Where you have to cut more lines, you have to cut this and that." I, at a certain point, I said to them, "I'm not cutting anything else. We'll just let them sue us." <laughs> But uh, one of the greatest things, though, was um, Michael Hogan and the friendship that uh, that grew out of that. Uh, he became one of my best friends. Um, and if you guys don't know this, he had a really bad fall back during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So please link to his GoFundMe page if you guys have it. We will. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. But he's doing much better, it sounds like. Fantastic. Um, but... Uh, getting to know him and establishing a friendship. And it, it was sort of like, it's magic in those, in those moments because I was a huge fan of Battlestar Galactica. And I remember when they, when we were looking for this, uh, this the, for the actor to play Gerard, I remember coming across him, I said, is he available? Would he do this? And he loved it. He loved every minute of it. He relished those bad guy lines. Tim would always have to pull him back and, and Hogan would say things like, but it just, it wants to be said like this. <laughs> he, was, he was doing pure like Shakespearean villain uh, on stage. Um, I mean, we wouldn't have mountain ash. Without him. No, always uh, air on the side. One of, of everyone's Hogan. favorite moments. It's yeah, so good. Sure. It's so good. <laughs> But that's okay because oh. Gerard is this is this overtop Machiavellian Shakespearean right. character, than life right? Character. So you, I don't think anyone else could have done the character justice that way. So yeah, but uh, it was a hard season to shoot. I made them reshoot a lot of stuff, and it was one of the times where I, I said to myself, "I will never do another season with a man in a suit, with a creature in a suit." Okay. It was so hard to get that thing to look good. <laughs> the pool scene where it's skulking around the pool, mm -hmm. we reshot the whole thing. Um, the first time it was shot, it looked terrible. And it looked like a guy like just walking around a pool with a the wrinkly, scaly suit on. And <laughs> I said to Russell, uh, I'm gonna make you reshoot the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and he was he was not happy with me. Oh, no. um, but then we went, and I actually remember getting down on the tile myself and crawling around and saying, "I want you to look like this, make it look like this." And I kept referencing the same thing over and over. Uh, the old uh, documentary animal documentary shots of alligators going in and out of the water, and how you only see like their leg. And I said, I kept saying, get me the alligator shots. Um, and that's when it looked, it looked good, when you just saw the tail or when you just saw an arm. Seeing the whole thing at once, not quite as good. Um, I actually, uh, on a pickup day when the whole season was done, I shot the scenes of the canima in the ceiling in, um, in the gay club episode, uh, what was that, Abomination? Frenemy? Um, yeah. I think that was Frenemy, yeah. Yeah, Frenemy. Um, because I wanted it to look like um, the aliens in uh, the ceiling in Aliens. Um, and he just shot them upside down. 
So that's what we did. I have a, I put him on a, a little thing with a bunch of pipes on it. And it's just this guy crawling around in the suit and then we flip it upside down. That's it. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I remember that. Yeah. Sometimes the cheapest tricks like that make for the best effects. Um, I love the scene of abomination when you see the shadow of the canima before it actually comes in. Yeah. Well, and that's like, oh, it's so good. It's so creepy. Yeah, by that point, we were like, just show a shadow, please. <laughs> <laughs> Worked super I mean, one well. Of, one of the things about the Canima was um, Colton, the suit was made for Colton, but he had an allergic reaction to the makeup. Some people just have allergic reactions to uh, the glue, I believe they used, and his face would puff up, swell up, and turn mm -hmm. red. And so we realized we can't use Colton in the creature suit anymore. We had to use our stunt guy. Um, and there are um, there was a real difference between the stunt suit and the other suit. So um, it was really kind of hard to, to, to get consistency with the look. And one of the things you had to do, we had to do most in post-production was wrinkle removal. Um, and this was the first time I realized, oh, that's how they make these suits look so smooth. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but Spider-Man, every shot pretty much is, he's wearing, if he's wearing a suit and it's not a complete digital creation, every single shot is redone in CGI or affected in CGI so that they remove the wrinkles from the suit. Yeah. I did not know that. That's incredible. Yeah. It makes I sense know. though when you think it about it because it's always yeah. so perfect, perfect. and smooth. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. Superhero suits and creature suits don't have wrinkles. Nope. <laughs> Which is funny because your skin can have wrinkles, um, but the creature suits when when they when it bunched up, it was like, oh god, it's it's a guy wearing a suit. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, not fun, not fun. But uh, speaking of the Canima, how did the Canima come about as a supernatural creature to introduce into the Teen Wolf universe? Well, I knew that I wanted to change it up. And my rule had always been, we're gonna stick within the world of shapeshifters. If it's a shapeshifter, it can be in our show. Um, we branched out a bit as seasons went on, as you do when you're approaching hundred episodes <laughs> to include things like ghost riders. Um, but at my, I, was, I was steadfast with that rule at the beginning. Um, and I had just come across it in research. I was looking at all the different kinds of shapeshifters and this was actually, during season one, um, because I told Colton, I said, if we get picked up for a season two, you're the bad guy and you're going to be a wizard, a giant walking wizard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the thing I liked about it, there was very little written about it. Um, but the thing I liked most was the fact that this shapeshifter, this was a shapeshifter that killed murderers. And I thought that's cool. That's, that's an interesting bad guy. That's more complicated than just a creature who kills because he's a pure killing machine or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that gave, that told me, okay, this creature has a story. It has an agenda. And so there's a mystery. And I'd always, um, I tried to make the show kind of like Harry Potter. Every season has its own mystery that needs to be solved. Because um, that was fun. I mean, the Harry Potter books, if you look at them, uh, each one is a very British mystery. <laughs> yeah, real revelation sure. at the end of each book. Um, so, and I knew that the the question of uh, 
who was the alpha in the first season was really good and drove people back to the episodes and we wanted something similar. So, so it was not who is the Kanema necessarily, but who controls the Kanema, who's the Kanema's master. And I liked that idea. And in my mind, uh, in stories like this, there are always two villains. There's the intellectual villain, and then there's the uh, killing machine villain. If you look at any horror movie or thriller even, you'll, you'll find it. In um, Silence of the Lamb, Lambs, uh, Hannibal is the intellectual villain. James Gunn is the killing machine. In the first Alien, you have both um, Ash and the alien. In the second uh, one, you have aliens. You have, who's, who's the intellectual villain? Burke. Burke. And you have the aliens. Um, you can find it in almost anything. So two villains. <laughs> yes. Nice. Uh, it's, nice. It's very innovative. It was like such a different take than uh, yeah anything else I would have expected, and I feel like that's what worked so well with Teen Wolf was the fact that like every season was kind of like a contained. I mean, obviously characters had growth, but like it was a very contained story, and I feel like it worked so yeah. well. That's why we say we actually did nine seasons <laughs> because yep. the three A, three A, and three B they're completely separate stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say about the Canima, there was one other inspiration for it um, because Canima is a South American, I think it's that Canima is actually a rare jaguar um, mm-hmm. and not a lizard. But one of the things that inspired me uh, from my childhood most was um, I saw Conan the Barbarian at a drive-in theater with nice. my mom and my brothers. And I seen the scene where uh, James Earl Jones turns into a, a gigantic snake was so profound, profoundly affected me. <laughs> I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. There's this one moment where he still has the head, his headdress on, and his face is is almost a full is a full snake it's before he becomes the the, the, the giant snake itself. Um, that just looks so cool to me. I think there's something primal about it in our minds, like we're all descended from lizard people or something, and we take. <laughs> terrified by it yeah oh that's such a good movie james Earl jones was such a, a great villain in that film yeah. <laughs> our next question is actually a fan question they were wondering did jackson leave beacon hills right away after the events in season two or do you think he and lydia spent any time together and shared any moments oh i could imagine that they shared a few moments together um uh but I'll leave that up to fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Fair enough. Because <laughs> yeah, we, at, 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 during the time when um, when uh, we were supposed to be figuring out what Jackson was doing, I was locked in a battle with his his representatives <laughs> without oh. bringing him back. <laughs> so it was uh, it was tough. There were a lot of phone calls. <laughs> The show has always had its horror side, but it felt like season two and onward, especially 3B, uh, really turned up the fear. We've talked a little bit about some of the horror movies that have inspired you. Are there others that you kind of referenced when you were creating the the horror stories of Teen Wolf? Oh, yeah. We do lots of homage to, I mean, The Shining was a seminal movie in my childhood. But I also love The Omen, The Exorcist, The Ring, um, tech, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's just terrifying. It's still terrifying. 
But I will tell you that there's one movie in particular that inspired this season. Um, and whether it's, uh, I mean, if we're diving really hard into my psyche, uh, this is the one that probably really uh, touched it off, which was um, a movie I saw when I was, God, I think six years old, because um, I saw it in a the theater. And I was so scared by this one scene, I had to be walked out of the theater and told it's just special effects, it's, uh, it's not real. And that was Clash of the Titans. And it was the scene with Medusa. Medusa. So I'm pretty sure um, that scene, I was somehow living out my terror of that scene through this season. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, because then, and there's a scene specifically in, in the show that um, reminds me of it, which is, now you know that um, uh, there's a scene where uh, the way Perseus eventually kills her is he uses the reflection on his shield to look at her. And he is able to cut off her head by seeing Medusa through the shield. And there is a shot in the second episode of season two where Coach Leahy holds up his glasses in that alleyway and sees the Canima rising through the glasses. And that's sort of a, a mirror to uh, Clash of the Titans for me when, when he sees Medusa rising up. I love that shot. Yeah. That's awesome. It's one of the it's best so shots in the show. It's that's so one of those good. Shots where the FX works so well. And I'm sitting there going, like, yeah. why can't they all look like that? <laughs> If Gerard had gotten the full bite like he'd wanted, what do you think he would have become? You know, in my mind, I think he would have become a werewolf. I think he had a, such a strong presence of character, either a werewolf or a bald eagle. Kind of, look, kind of looks like a bald eagle, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, no, I think he would have become a very powerful, very terrifying werewolf, just like Peter, maybe. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Thank God. That's a good question. Well, now I'm picturing him as Sam the Eagle from the Muppets. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nice. Fans were curious if there was any like Easter eggs or references in the season two finale that they might have missed, or you think someone like no one really picked up on. If I put them in there, I've probably forgotten them. <laughs> this is quite a while ago. But the only really thing we did, I remember, is uh, using the, um, the main title theme in the action scene. Um, and I remember we were looking for a good piece for that. And I said to the editor, why don't we try the main title in here? Because I loved the main title theme. I think Dino it's Menekin, so good. He, he made it so memorable and so good. Um, and I was so proud of the main title sequence. I love main title sequences. I'm the guy who, when watching a TV show, will not skip through the main title sequence. It's like an overture for the show to me. I love it. I always listen to the full thing for Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's never yeah. passed over. Yeah, Ramin Jawadi did an amazing job. But when we spoke to, to Dino for season one, we gushed about that it was like, we're just waiting for season two because that's when the main title shows up. And it's just, I mean, I, I do love that in season one, it's just... You get the teaser out and then you just get the title card and it's very spooky, evocative. But then it's just like when season two starts, it's like you get your teaser. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's time to fucking go and watch Teen Wolf. <laughs> you know, because it's just so, it's so bombastic and big and beautiful and amazing and perfect. Yeah, we, we played the first episode of season two at the Paley Center 
for the Paley Festival where they, when they invited us. And um, none of the cast had seen the main titles yet at that point. Awesome. And they all screamed when they saw it. <laughs> they, they thought it was so freaking cool. I was really happy about that. It's nice to see when the people involved in the show are so proud of it and, and, and get a kick out of it like you do. Oh, it's great. So good. And then the way it changes every year where it's like, what's kind of yeah. the idea of the season is like baked into the titles. So it's like, if you're paying attention, it's like, oh, there's, there, there's we're kind of showing you what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and it's just so cool. It's... <laughs> and then season six where we don't have any money left. <laughs> oh, <laughs> accurate. Very accurate. <laughs> accurate. So. Although I liked the season six main title. It was, uh, yeah. it was a throwback to like throwback, yeah. titles. Um, looking back on it now, I do wish we had done something, uh, especially because season six was the first time we were actually allowed to make uh, certain people series regulars, which we couldn't before. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know, know this, but um, people like Melissa Ponzio and J.R. Bourne were guest stars all the way up until season six, which is ridiculous. Oh my God. And that's because yeah. we couldn't afford to pay them as series regulars. It was easier to get through MTV for, M for, for us to say to MTV, look, we'll just keep them as recurring slash uh, um, guest stars. Um, and that was the way um, I was able to as well let them out to do other shows. So Melissa could do Chicago Fire. JR could do, um, I think he did like Secret Circle. Um, mm -hmm. Because if they're series regulars, they can't do other shows. Um, they're stuck with us. And I was like, we're never going to pay them enough <laughs> right. for them to be reliant completely on this show. Those things people, people like fans don't know about, and you only know about until you get into, get into the weeds in the industry. And you think these people on TV, they're all living in mansions. They're not. <laughs> so um, it's tough business. Yeah. Well, hopefully yeah fans will listen to us and get like you know better sense of like yeah it's there's a lot at work so things can't always play out the way that uh like your vision would necessarily like allow yeah, yeah. if there had been budget available in the sixth season to do um a theme sequence like the previous seasons that where it's not using clips from the show mm -hmm. what what do you think the um, the sequences for JR and Melissa would have looked like? That's a good question. I left that up to um, our main title guy, Chris Billick, who was really smart and kind of a genius at it. And he would watch the show and say, okay, I think this should be a shot of this. And um, I probably would have... I mean, they always look great in action shots, you know. So no one could, no one could uh, uh, cock a shotgun like Jr. Actually, only Brayden and Jill could do yeah. it as well. <laughs> but uh, but uh, that's a good question, and I would love to see that. Who knows? If we ever get another season, we'll have that new main title sequence. Yeah, Melissa <laughs> defibrillating somebody. Yes. Be awesome. <laughs> The mythology of the Omega werewolf seems to shift, pun intended, between Search for a Cure and the season two opener, Omega. How did the idea of the Omega werewolf evolve as the world building of Teen Wolf continued into the second season? 
The interesting thing about that actually is the term omega in wolf packs in nature has evolved as well. Um, the omega is not what they really thought it was. Um, they, they always thought it was the sort of run to the pack, the, um, the, the, the member who's, uh, gets beat up or gets the food last, um, which is true, but it also, the omega can refer to a pack member that sort of holds the pack together as well. But for me, we had a completely different idea going in season one what the omega was. I think the omega was more like the true alpha in season one, actually. We were thinking of it that way. And then we tossed that idea out and uh, I think retrofitted <laughs> a new one. In. Um, and, you know, as a writer, uh, you should always claim the right to retrofit. <laughs> God knows Lucas has done it many times. Um, yes. So, uh, but uh, I, eventually what the Omega came out to be was really the lone wolf, which is was the fascinating uh, thing to me because the idea that a lone wolf doesn't survive without a pack. So it changed because we liked the theme better. Changed thematically for us. Um, I can't even remember what it was in Search for a Cure. God, all I all I know is that Search for a Cure. I directed that, and I can't watch it now. It's like, oh my god, this looks like a bad short film. But I know people liked it. <laughs> it's fun. It it's a, fun, yeah. Just a fun little baby adventure. Yeah, that was one of the things. What I, what I really, I look back on season two and I think to myself, oh God, I wish we had more money. Oh God, I wish the, the canima looked better in that shot or I wish we could have redone this. But I'm really proud of the season. I think we upped the, the emotional stakes. And I also, one of the things I'm most proud of is the humor. Um, I think it's one of our funniest, some of our funniest lines. I'm really proud of some of the lines um, uh, that Styles has, really proud of... Uh, I loved writing for Ian Bowen again. Um, all those those lines of dialogue because we were sort of given free reign. Um, after season one, uh, they gave us a lot more freedom to try things. I remember when I went in and pitched uh, the season, the second season of Teen Wolf to um, the MTV executives, Justin and David. And I love David Gentileri. He's one of the greatest guys in the world. He's great friend of mine um but uh when i was pitching to him i'm in his office in mtv and um he's got ridiculousness on one of his screens playing um just on a loop and so i'm pitching the second season and trying to explain these things like this it's called canima it has a master it looks like a walking lizard it's kind of like um the lizard in spider-man um, which was actually what they were doing. <laughs> it was coming out almost at the same time, I think. Um, and uh, I keep looking over at ridiculousness playing on his screen, and he keeps looking over at it too. And it's a shot of an elephant using its trunk to dig shit out of another elephant's ass. <laughs> Literally. And I looked at David at one point and I said, David, I'm trying to pitch season two to you. <laughs> and he laughed and he turned it off. But that's like, imagine me trying to get across what the canima is while uh, that's playing in the background. <laughs> that's how we did it at MTV. That seems to be 
MTV's main programming these days. Someone like shared like one of the recent schedules that was just like ridiculousness for like 22 hours of the day. Hours. When I asked, when I said to them, I said, why don't you guys repeat our show and have it have an audience built? And maybe we can get more viewers at Monday night at 10. Um, and they said, well, a repeat of ridiculousness does 10 times better than anything new. <laughs> and I was like, Insane. all right, guys, just giving up. <laughs> this is so depressing. It's very depressing. Yeah. <laughs> God. Are there any mythologies you would have liked to have brought into the show? I think, I don't know, you were there by the end, Will. We're, uh, like in season six, weren't we, weren't we struggling to come up with new mythologies? <laughs> A little bit. And I think that yeah. is why we ended up with, with Monroe where it's yeah. just we need to have it's time for so much awful has happened in this town it's time for human beings to be like how about yeah. no so but uh and that yeah. was during uh uh the election when it was right before trump and i remember saying to the room uh well hillary will be elected in and this will probably all be a moot point in a couple months but let's just keep going with this sort of trump allegory <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, we know. But uh, yeah, and Monroe by that point was great. And I thought, so good. I remember thinking, uh, yeah, this is the right time to make the humans the villains. I mean, it, 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 it's a long standing storyline in the X Men comic books. And we did, our pack did have an overlap with the X Men um, in, in, in terms of theme. Uh, but uh, I will say there are some mythologies that I wish I had gotten a chance to explore further. Um, one of them being the Skinwalkers. Um, yeah. I think we, we only scratched the surface of the Skinwalkers. And I thought, you know what? This would be a really cool story to really flesh out and do a whole season about. Um, so I could have seen that happening. Unfortunately, Colton Haynes did leave, but if he had stayed, what do you think would have happened with Lydia's relationship with Styles and Jackson um, moving into season three? And did you have any big plot points for Jackson? We had a real concrete plan. Um, he was, uh, there was going to be a romance between Lydia and Jackson. It was going to um, greatly affect Styles, uh, And uh, Jackson was going to be part of Scott's pack. Um, and the way I pitched it to Colton was, um, going back to the X-Men, I said, you'll be Wolverine. You'll be the hothead, the, the pessimist, the one who's always certain he's got the better idea. And that, that, all, that character always makes a good foil in a group. And um, I, I feel like you always need a character like that. So if you notice, that's actually how Isaac's character progressed. Mm. Um, he became more of the Wolverine of Scott's pack, the more of the hothead. The one who, would go forward um but it was it was tough losing colton and it was um it forced us to uh rethink a lot of stuff um but uh when we got into it on season three we were like you know what shows about scott and styles and allison and we have all these other great characters and we were we were really um we were utterly in love with Holland at that point as well. And we just felt like Lydia's character, she didn't need, she didn't need Jackson. <laughs> to she got grown in. Yeah. yeah. She, uh, 
it was always, it was, there, was, there, were, there would be some moments in the writer's room where everybody wanted to tell Lydia's story, where everybody wanted to tell this story. And Holland was one of our favorite people to write for always. She'd play anything. Incredibly talented. Of course, everyone on the show was so talented. When we were re-watching Shapeshifted, uh, the Kanima goes to the Leahy house when Scott and Allison are there. Why does the Kanima go there in that episode? That is a question I can't answer. <laughs> I don't Fair. know. <laughs> but I'll tell you um, one reason that might be. Um, I'd have to actually look up the emails and stuff. And I bet someone like Paul from the Wikio could answer it immediately. I can't remember, but um, it very likely might've been because we that was the only place we could shoot that scene. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. In a lot of instances, um, the production, you'll say, oh, I wanna shoot this scene where they face off with the Canima for the first time here. And the producer, Joe, or someone else comes and says, well, that would require us to do a whole move. That means all the trucks and all the equipment has to move to a completely new location for one scene. And so then you think, well, where else could this take place? And Joe says to you, well, we are gonna be at this house for a 14 hour day, and we could probably fit this scene in at the end of that day uh, on hour 14. And then you say, and then you, then you say, well, I'm not really sure why the cannon is there, but if that's the only place we can shoot it, it's there. <laughs> and that is actually a lot of the way the show is <laughs> You like, I can't, I'm, I still find it utterly staggering how much money shows have these things to get made. And it's all because of like Game of Thrones um, and places like Netflix that give so many millions of dollars that that's not even a question. Um, but back then when we were doing this, we had $5 and dollar number four was spent. Um, and we had to figure out, well, where could we put this scene? And I remember by like season five, I remember saying, I'm sure Will has heard this many times in the writer's room. We can't have another goddamn fight scene in the locker room. <laughs> just can't. Yeah. And then yeah. they were like, well, you want to do it in the back of the parking lot? Uh, <laughs> where? Uh, behind our stages? And I said, no, let's just put it in the locker room. <laughs> we did. Was, when we were watching it, though, we were like, okay, they kind of had to do it in the locker room because the uh, the Argents had put cameras all through the school. Yes. But I would bet you the one place they would not put them would be the locker rooms because they're not trying to get sued. Exactly. So. <laughs> It all makes sense. That's good. Yeah, there so. you go. Yeah. What was your most memorable or favorite scene from season two and why? There are a lot that I love. So it's probably hard to pick one. Um, I mean, I love a lot of the humor. Um, I love uh, moments like no styles or um, God, I love the, I love the scene in the gay club. Um, there are a lot of moments with Scott and Styles that I'm really proud of, a lot of the humor moments. Um, but there is a scene, a moment that like really hits emotionally for me still, if I see it. And it's, it is one of my favorite moments in the season. It's when Melissa um, sees Scott as a werewolf for the first time. 
And I think that probably goes like it hits me subconsciously because it's a certain kind of coming out moment for Scott. It's almost so uh, having grown up as uh, a gay teenager who had to eventually tell my parents myself that I was gay. Um, that was a very hard thing to do with my mom who, who I knew would be okay with it. And if you notice, Melissa is perfectly fine in the next episode, mm -hmm. um, which needed to happen. It needed to be a big turnaround that she gets over that initial shock and says to herself, this is my son, I love my son. Um, but it was that kind of moment in my life represented on screen. And so it's kind of, it's pretty powerful for me to watch. And she's so good in it. Melissa is amazing in that scene. Yes, yes. The look that Scott gives where he turns away. Um, I, I was really proud of that. I like that moment a lot. Um, and I just remember thinking, God, Melissa's good. We've got to write more stuff for her, more Melissa. Um, I miss working with her. She's one of the best people in the business. She's so she kind. She's very kind to us. We I just know. love yeah. talking to her. Yeah, we had a wonderful time talking to her. So I think zealots are always fascinating characters to explore. How did Victoria Argent's extremism and willingness to kill herself before turning come about in the writer's room? That was a lot of Christian Taylor's idea. Um, he said, I remember when, because I, I tried to hire Christian on the first season, um, but the timing wasn't right. Um, and then we got him in on the second season. And one of the first things he said is, you need to up the stakes here. And I agreed. I thought, okay, we need to kill off a character. We need to... We need to show that um, we can do an emotional payoff. I mean, we killed off characters in the first season, but um, there's always the hint of bringing them back. And, but with Victoria, it was hard because she was one of my favorite characters. And I, at first I was like, I don't want to kill her off. I love her. Um, and she was just fun to write for, you know, that sort of um, the villainous mom who at one minute she's talking about cutting someone's head off and then saying, anyone want a cookie or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great moment um, in the show and she's she was fun to write for and um but uh we needed to change up the dynamic and we needed to hit allison really hard too um i mean it's funny because fans want the characters to be happy but once the characters are happy in a tv show your story is over so there's no conflict when the character's happy uh, you gotta, you gotta hit them with the worst possible thing. And it seemed like a good way to, um, deepen the mythology, deepen the story. I don't know if I would have done it the same way now because it is a suicide on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, and these days I'm much more sensitive to subject matter like that, um, being part of, uh, fiction. Um, especially if you're doing a show about teen werewolves, you know? Um, although it's pretty dramatic. I, I feel like it worked for the season. I just don't know if I would have done it that way again. Okay. What do you think? I love how gut-wrenching it is. I love that Chris is holding her as she does. And, but I, I love it from the point of, I mean, from season one, she has been so extreme. That, that yes. And it's just like, well, this is how this ends. Like you have a character like this and then you do yes. the thing to them they hate most in the world. It's like, yeah. there's, they're not going to be like, I bet I could make it work. They're going right. to be That's like, nope. 
yeah and i mean and like i said i love zealots i think they're fascinating that someone yeah. believes so completely in something it and was, um yeah it was our way of getting a kind of religion into the show because if you'll notice um there's rarely a mention of religion in the show uh, and that's on purpose and yeah she's such an interesting character did you uh come up with any sort of backstory for her and like how she became part of like this family of extreme hunters, like how she fell in love with Argent in the first place. There probably was a lot of debate about it. And I actually saw, saw it, um, JR and I talked about it uh, once. I mean, he was like, well, how did they meet? And why are they together? And why does he love her? And I said to him, I think I remember saying to him, it's, you know, think of it kind of like, it's more of a business relationship. Um, and this is the way they were put together. They were paired together by maybe Gerard and said, uh, you two are gonna be together. I kind of saw them like um, uh, a Russian KGB spy family. Yeah. So that's how they ended up together in my head. Nice. Will had said something like that when yeah. we were watching it, that he felt like it was, it was, uh, it wasn't so much a love match as the joining of two historic houses. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's just the way, because they're not, I mean, the artists don't feel like an overly affectionate family, you know, but no, I feel like there's that, no moments of that. really. Yeah. And so it just felt like, it's like, well, you're from a, a prestigious family. I'm from a prestigious family. We are now a stronger prestigious family. And, mm -hmm. and they did their duty and had a daughter and yeah. that type of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, how they relate to Allison is really interesting too, because with with Victoria choosing to kill herself instead of becoming a werewolf, it kind of could go two very different ways. Like Allison could be like, "Is that what being a hunter is?" Because that, yeah. Or she could throw herself into it, which is what ultimately happens. We, we've we heard that there were two different endings shot for season two. Um, is that accurate? And if so, what was the ending that didn't end up airing? Um, that's not accurate at all. Uh, there was only one ending shot um, and it was always... Uh, we may have had an idea because the endings first the, the ending for season two is a it's a lot of epilogues i think there's like four epilogues <laughs> um but uh because i know that the the opening of the finale we actually made the end of episode 11 uh where they're on the lacrosse so that was actually the opening of 212 um, and we realized just how long 212 was and that we had a little time at the end of 11. And I said, well, what if we just, or actually it wasn't probably wasn't me, I'm claiming credit for this, which I shouldn't. <laughs> it was probably one of the editors who said, why don't we just make the opening of 11, the, uh, the opening of 12, the end of 11 and cut on that cliffhanger. I was like, that's a great idea. Um, we were constantly fighting for time on this show. We, every, every single episode, we had to cut things that, we couldn't bear to cut, um, but uh, not like today when episodes can be anywhere between 50 and 75 minutes for some shows. We were a strict 
40 minutes and 30 seconds most of the time. I think we they got I think they gave us another 30 seconds by the end of season four or something. How generous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had so many commercial breaks. It's like, God, every other second it feels like a commercial was popping on. And, and these days when I watch a show myself and see the show fade to black, I'm like, where's it going? What happened? Did someone pass out? <laughs> It just doesn't feel right anymore. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the end was always uh, the lacrosse moment with Scott and Styles. It was always going to be the introduction of the alpha pack with the symbol that is supposed to look sort of like a Nazi symbol. Um, and uh, the last scene, which I directed actually uh, between Scott and Styles. Um, and we did it really fast. And it was so gray out too that day. God, it was always so gray in Atlanta. Nice place to live. I would never shoot there again. Um, but, uh, well, partially because the Marvel movies own Atlanta. Um, they're all shot there, uh, the movies and the TV shows. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, that was always going to be the last scene. There is no alternate season two ending. Wait, though, so what are the theories on the other ending? Is there a theory of how the, the show ended alternately? We've heard different things. I, I think people were saying like they thought that Jackson stayed dead because he's supposed to die. He's supposed to yeah. die. Yeah, I think there was just people thought that maybe Jackson, um, you wrote one where he did die and didn't come back and was considering like shooting that. Or you had shot it or something. I like can't that. remember. We might have. But I'm but when people ask me about why did you kill off these characters and stuff and I know that I was probably the one in the room saying, we can't kill him off. I don't want to kill him off. I'm always the one saying that. I mean, I'm like, like George Lucas, who everybody kept telling him, you got to kill off Han Solo. And he's like, I don't want to. The <laughs> <laughs> kid's movie. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> so, um, no, I hated killing off characters. It's devastating to me. So. To the fans too. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> how did Derek choose his betas in season two? Um, how did he know who they were and what they wanted? Um, I think he went after kids who uh, had vulnerability, teenagers who needed, who thought they needed a certain kind of power. But Derek's idea of power was different from Scott's. So he was going after the ones who... Um, they were Pygmalion stories for all of them, really, you know? Um, a little too obvious with Erica, which uh, I don't know. We, you, you don't want to do a story where, yes, she, it, it cleared her acne, made her hair better and stuff, but um, they're, they're, it's a fine line before, before um, it's a fine line between doing a story about uh, confidence being raised and then or doing a story about a, a girl becoming super pretty because she took the the magic potion you know and do you make it that shallow and i never wanted to make it that shallow you know that's a difficult question to answer exactly how he chose them i'm sure he did his research <laughs> hung around the schools lurking <laughs> behind fences <laughs> our man can lurk he can lurk Just standing there in the woods <laughs> we want to get a 
cardboard cutout of Derek just to like place behind us for the interviews, <laughs> video interviews we do. He's just watching from the background. Flowering <laughs> from the shadows. <laughs> yep. Was it always Peter's plan to use Lydia as a failsafe, do you think? Or uh, was that kind of discovered while breaking season two? Uh, no, that was my plan at the end of season one. Um, and the reason is because um, I just really liked Ian. And I'm like, I'm not done with this character. It's too much fun. And I thought, well, how can we bring him back? And my, my go-to was Star Trek II. Um, Star Trek II and then Star Trek III, the search for Spock. Right. So I thought to myself, okay, uh, Peter is going to uh, Vulcan mind melt with Lydia. And remember, Star Trek III is uh, Spock's sort of essence. His soul is trapped in McCoy. Yeah. And they get it out. So yeah. I stole it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. Steal from the best. Yeah. So. In in our uh, job, we call it homage. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We wanted the bite to bring out Lydia's innate powers. Um, that was always the plan. But the other thing was uh, that it could have held the capacity to bring back Peter. So we have another fan question. Um, what are your thoughts on some calling Scott using Derek to give Gerard the bite as a betrayal, especially considering Derek thought of the bite as a gift? Do you wish they could have had a scene to like reconcile? And um, this this is a pretty big, I guess, fandom talking point. What what are your thoughts on it? Well, uh, fandom has a lot of talking points that they'd like to talk to me about <laughs> pointedly. <laughs> but um, I would say, I mean, Scott and Der Derek are adversaries in the second season. They're not allies. They are very rarely allies. And there are moments when Derek is a real dick. So, <laughs> if, and Scott is really naive about what he's doing. He, I wanted a character that makes a lot of mistakes, you know? Um, and it goes back to season one. Scott has a learning curve. He has to go from a naive kid who always thinking about his lacrosse and being in love to a real true leader who thinks selflessly and heroically and and uh, can come up with a plan. And so if you were Scott and thinking to yourself, I think I know how to beat this guy, would you trust Derek to be part of the plan? Or would you think if I go to Derek with this, he's gonna say no immediately. And how, what am I gonna do then? So I don't really see it as a betrayal. I see it as both Derek and Scott then being adversaries and, and using each other. Um, and it's not until season three and onward until they really start to become allies. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I think you need those betrayals between characters. Um, and, and it's more fun when the other character can say, why didn't you tell me this? I mean, the first one says, because I knew, I knew you wouldn't have gone along with the plan. I knew you would have, wouldn't have trusted me because you think I'm a stupid kid. So those are all the things behind it. Yeah. Um, there's a certain need or want among fandom to have all the characters get along for some reason, but then you don't have conflict. That's what fanfic is for. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you talked about the suit, but um, if you had total freedom, no network notes, 
no fans, unlimited budget, unlimited time writing and shooting, and no actors leaving, what would you have done differently in season two or at any other point in the show? Well, unlimited budget. I would uh, <laughs> I would have moved the show to LA <laughs> sooner. <laughs> um, because uh, once we moved the show to LA, it just looked so much better. Um, LA is, is, is made for filmic, whereas Atlanta is still adapted. Um, one of, we brought as many, as many crew members from Atlanta as we could. And I remember one of our crews saying that it's so much easier to shoot in LA because if you need a plug, you turn around, there's a plug. It's usually like in the floor. If you need another camera, it arrives that day not three days later from FedEx, you know? Um, it's Hollywood was made for filmmaking and it's still much easier to shoot and get the most out of your budget um, in Hollywood. So I would have done that. But um, as for story, I don't know. There, I mean, most of the, if I had an infinite amount of money, I would go back and do a George Lucas pass on the effects. I would, I would do it. I, 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 although some of the shots that I look back at now, like that one Canama shot through the eyeglasses, wouldn't change a thing. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but there are ones where I would kill to be able to redo. And may, maybe I'll do that one day when I have money to burn. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So much of it holds up so well. And I think it's really impressive for like knowing how little budget there, uh, there was for the show and that it was like, you know, 10 years now since the pilot. So Derek is very seductive in his scene when he offers Erica the bite. He also seems to kiss her back before pushing her away. Why did Derek approach her in this way? And was there ever an idea of something like developing between the two characters? The character of Erica, there was supposed to be a romance between her and Styles. That's where we were building actually. Um, but what, what you discover on set sometimes is the two characters you thought would have chemistry don't. <laughs> and they just, when we put Dylan and um, Gage together, they looked more like brother and sister to me. And that's always the problem. You bring these actors in for chemistry reads and they either look, they either have great chemistry, comes off a little flat, or you think to yourself, they look more like brother and sister than a romance. This episode was, that episode was directed by Tim, I believe. Um, and one of the notes we had gotten from MTV, just we, we got it constantly, was the show needs to be sexed up. It needs to be sexy. And so we were always looking for moments where we could make it a little bit more sexy, a little bit more dangerous. I probably wrote that as a give to the network. Um, because you give them one thing like that, and then they leave you alone for a little while. <laughs> In the first season, one of the notes I got was, there needs to be more sexiness to the show. It needs to be, we need to sex it up. One of the, there's an exact quote is, every scene should be oozing with sex. So I, that's, when, when, you're, when you're locked in like uh, a battle like that, you have, you're forced to give a little bit. So we're, because I look at the scene now and I'm like, where were we going with that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but that's one of those moments where you, you give a little to the network and then they get off your back for a little while. So I know that people think 
that there's so much control and that every scene is exactly what we meant it to be, but it's not. Some, some scenes you look back at and you do say to yourself, what were we thinking? I was writing it now, if we were doing it now, I'd say, let's do this differently um, because it is a little icky. It's a little gross. <laughs> I had wondered if there was kind of like his trauma from what happened with Kate coming out. Cause I imagine that she used kind of like a seductive thing on him and he, yeah, like it just unconsciously was kind of like remembering back to whenever she was, you know, seducing him. I, I think that's a good idea and that would have been great, but we were literally just, uh, let's give the network something here. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> let's make this scene sexy and then they can get off my back. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it takes and, to get the network on yeah and uh and a lot of the answers to these kinds of questions are are kind of that basic um we were just trying to just trying to get the network off our back or oh we didn't have the money to shoot it anywhere else um that's how that's how shows like this get made sometimes um when you're when you're making it up as you go along because the budget requires it or the timing we're always running out of time so Will remembers. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very un- upsetting. Yeah, and you're writing scenes that have to shoot the next day. It's definitely understandable. I just also really like whenever someone has like headcans that they didn't get a chance to actually like share or have on screen. So it's mm-hmm. just like to see. Was there anything else at work there? Any backstory that you didn't get to share? Well, you know what I love hearing. I love hearing a fan ask me a question like that, and me sitting there thinking, "That's a great idea. Why didn't you do that?" <laughs> 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 why didn't why, Will? Why didn't you? Why didn't you pitch that? Because I was in Los Angeles. I couldn't. <laughs> I wasn't there at the time. It was. It was awful. Well, that wasn't. That wasn't. That wasn't happening. One of the days when I sat in on the writers' room for season two, unfortunately. So <laughs> otherwise, I would have jumped right in. Will's thing was always. Will kept coming back to one thing, which is he felt like Scott should kill someone. Remember I'm that? Not, I'm oh, not surprised I, yeah. by that. My rule was always Scott cannot willingly or purposely take a human life um, because that's just who he is. We'll debate that again, Will, on, on an upcoming episode of I Return will. to Beacon Hills. I'll hold you to that, <laughs> sir. But thank you so much, Jeff, for joining <laughs> us you. today and talking about the season two finale. This has thank been an absolute guys. joy. Oh, me really yes. Thank you so much. We always nice, love walk down, nice walk down memory lane with you all. Yes. That was another great interview we had with Jeff, but now it's time to get back to spoilers. It's interesting that the scene on the field was originally going to be the start of this episode, though, because that would have been such a short time for Styles to be gone. Yeah, it is. It would be weird. Uh, You know, it feels like he would then only be gone for like a handful of scenes, you know, and and at least with ending it in the previous episode, it's like he was gone for a whole week in human time in, <laughs> yeah. in, in watching time, time you in know, viewer time yeah in viewer time but uh you're right had this been the beginning of the episode it's like styles is gone oh oh no i, I got him he's he's back we're <laughs> yeah. fine yeah so. pacing wise that would be unusual i i think moving it to the end was a good move yeah definitely yeah and I, I really loved that i think i think teen wolf like kind of not so much struggles as like maybe misses the mark with their like with like understanding how like time passes at the show yeah um just because like you don't like the only reason we know 
it's like it's exactly four months and not just like the two and a half of summer between like two and three a is because it says that in the opening blurb of the first episode for tattoo and it's like it says that and I'm like okay so we have context for that but like we don't even know technically when the show like starts in the beginning like time passing throughout the episodes gets a little like funky like is it like it's obviously very early morning we realize in the episode at the very end because Sheriff talks about last night when in referencing the Mm -hmm. like the kidnapping and then the like lacrosse game so like it's obviously been like a span of like maybe eight hours but that's only through like context clues so we don't really get to see that transition so I'm glad that they didn't like flub that because it would be really weird to see like oh he's only gone for like two hours he's been brutally beaten but it was only two hours so he's gonna be fine yeah right (laughs) right yeah, I, that is an ongoing issue. So guys, Allison definitely knew that Gerard had kidnapped Styles because she's home during all this, right? I mean, I know you kind of touched on this, Jay, that you didn't think so, but I feel like she had to. She was home. It's not that, I mean, it's a big house, but it's not that big. Yeah. It's not that big, but also, like, if the Argents are seen, like, with a giant, a creepy giant, like, murder van, and, um, like, a child like an actual teenager, like being dragged into the house in some way, like that would be weird. So I feel like there has to be a discreet way to get him to the basement, maybe like taking the van all the way into the garage and having a door directly to the basement in which Allison would not have seen. Like, I feel like there has to be, I feel like there has to be some overlap there, which is just like strange. Well, the, the issue that I would have with it is that Allison was so excited about capturing the betas, but this would mean that she doesn't ever go down there. And she just trusts that Gerard is going to do with them what she would want him to. I feel yeah. like Gerard should have made like a comment that he doesn't want her going down there or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like if just for us to know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he could have said something like, you know, as you know, we train boys to be soldiers and girls to be leaders. So, so when it comes to the the grunt work, that's that's me and my henchmen. That's what we need to be doing. You need to be resting and, you know, making sure that mentally you have your A game to strategize. You don't need to be like down there actually getting your hands dirty, so to speak. Like you, you already dabbled in that by being the one to capture them. You know, what, whatever he has to say, he's a master manipulator. That's what he does. But I would have liked if we're supposed to assume that she doesn't know, I would have liked there to be something there because I find it hard to believe for her as a person and especially where she is as a character right now that she would just be like, oh, okay, grandpa. I assume you're going to take care of this and I- Let Styles be tortured. I feel like that's the harder thing to believe. Like, oh, like my friend that I've like known that's like helped me keep up a relationship with like my boyfriend that I love. Um, yeah, I'm just going to go let him get abused by my grandfather for a while. Like, I feel like she has a better relationship with him than that. And I feel like that's the least likely thing to believe of all of the things, which tends to be how Team Wolf works. <laughs> yeah, wrong. I, I, I don't know. I just feel like maybe it's a, just a very uncharitable view of Allison this season. But the way she treats Lydia doesn't that we actually see does not bode well for how good she is at prioritizing her friend's feelings when she's in a bad place. Mm-hmm. Even when those friends have gone through something 
very traumatic. Like it would be one thing for her to be like, Lydia, I don't want to talk about your breakup with Jackson. You know, I've got other things to deal with. But Lydia, I don't want to talk about how you were attacked by a mysterious stranger and then stuck in the hospital and can't figure out what is going on or why that happened or why you were nearly murdered. Like those, that is an actual near-death experience. And Allison's still kind of like, be quiet, Lydia. I don't have time for this conversation. So it's like, I would like to believe that about Allison, yeah. but I don't know that the scenes that we do actually have canonically in terms of how she treats Lydia bode well for that assumption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's unfortunately this happens in stories and on Teen Wolf a bit, where it's like we have a whole set of actions that a character has um exhibited but now they're not going to do a thing because it really makes them look bad instead of we have a whole series of actions that a character has done and they are just going to keep with that forward momentum of the character instead because it's like it's like well she can't know he's down there because then that'd be really bad it's like yeah but stabbing isn't bad attempted murder isn't you know where it's just like you it's the writers are protecting the characters instead of letting the characters be fully realized based on their own actions you know and it's just not good writing that's not how writing and storytelling is supposed to work if a character makes a decision there has to be consequences for that that decision you can't just all of a sudden have half measures in your storytelling just because you're trying to protect a character it's like well you can do that i guess but that's just not good writing that's not how it's supposed to work and i mean one of the most interesting moments with allison this season is when chris in a last ditch effort to pull allison away from this fiery vengeance that she has on the brain for Derek is to say well what about Scott because he's going to get caught up in the middle of this and she 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 doesn't have that kind of murderous rage towards Scott but she also doesn't react so strongly to protecting him that she's going to veer from this path that she's chosen and that moment where she says it's not about Scott right now I'm focused on Derek and I want him dead is such a fascinating moment with her on screen. It's so interesting. There's so much conflict between those characters. That's one of the most interesting moments with her. And regardless of whether she shows remorse for what's happening to Styles or tries to convince Gerard to let him go, whatever it is that happens, mm-hmm. it's way more interesting or would be way more interesting for us to see her experiencing that conflict than to have to pick out whether she even knows about it. Cause there's already a lot of like in this season, characters just not sharing information mm-hmm. with other characters to make the plot move forward. When there's an opportunity to make the plot move forward with characters having all the information and just making those moral decisions even more stark and informed, you should take that opportunity. That's more yeah. interesting. That's greater drama. Yeah. If you have to do hail family backflips in order for a character not to do something, it's the wrong choice that you are making. <laughs> so, yeah. We didn't think about it at the time, but speaking of all the gifts that Styles bought Lydia that we see in this episode, I really want to know what he ended up giving her. And I think we should try asking Jeff at some point in the future. For yeah. Yes, absolutely. What was in that giant box? I absolutely yeah. must know. How many with Paltrow's heads were in box? that was a big box that was that's like that was like a 20 head box that was like a big box 
It was every issue of Goop. So Scott's master plan, what do we think of it? Uh, I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's his. I think it's Dean's. I, also, I that makes no sense. That I, I definitely would buy that it was Deaton's plan, um, which makes even less likely what we already deemed unlikely, which was Deaton's claim that he had made a promise to Talia to look after Derek. Um, yeah. Deaton, what? How could you be so bad at this job? Like, like real bad real bad i don't understand why they put that in there because i feel like it never goes anywhere anyway yeah i don't know i don't know like him i feel like styles would have even come up with a better pin like having deaton's information would be important but like okay like actually why does scott not tell styles like like what is what is the actual reason because i can't think of a single reason for him not to and I can think of 10,000 reasons why he should know. And then that would make it more prevalent for Styles to have gone missing. Like we have this plan and he's not here. And I have to trust Derek and Peter now because I can't find my best friend who knows about my plan is helping and is helping me with it. I feel like that would make like style like Scott like more aware of the context of the situation and like but Styles doesn't know. And like some people, like in fan fiction, some people speculate that Derek assumes that Styles knew. And I think oh, that yeah. there, I think there eventually had to be a conversation about like no styles doesn't know. Otherwise Derek would hate styles. And that like doesn't seem to be the relationship by season three. And yeah. I think that that just like especially those interactions, because it makes like it makes Derek hate him. He doesn't want styles around his betas, around his pack. And then it like comes to this big like reconciliation point. Like, no, I had no idea. I would never let Scott do that to you, especially not without your consent. I feel like that would be a very important conversation and one that would lead to character development on like every level for all of them yeah so i think that's just like doesn't make a lot of sense like writing wise well maybe he didn't tell styles because he did think that styles would not want him to do it okay that's a valid point it's possible Very true. you know still good yeah, drama we should have seen though that's true yeah it would yeah that would have been a really interesting thing to deal with if Styles is like okay well why didn't why didn't you tell me and Scott being like I kind of thought you wouldn't go for that and that would have been really interesting yeah maybe now I have to write it <laughs> hey we would, we would love do. to read that that concludes this week's episode of return to beacon hills we hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things teen wolf and we hope you enjoyed jay helping us navigate the season two finale with us we certainly did jay where can people find you on the internet i'm on instagram at j.young22 j spelled j-a-e and on tumblr at Browns Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.